You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. <laughs> Back and I told Rich that uh, the the less appropriate your name is, the less you respect the guest we're having on. No, the more we trust the guest. <laughs> That's how I was hoping it would be, but I think Kirk came at me first and told me that information. So like, I, that's the first thing I thought of. So like, I believe Kirk on this. Yeah, we didn't get on the same page beforehand. No, we so did go ahead. You you guys can get up. Can you put your real names in. I'll wait. No, this is my real name. I want Rich to think that this is my permanent name every time we chat. Because when I was on Rich's podcast like a month ago. That was my screen name, and now I have him convinced that that's what I have, no matter the guest. It's like that's saved; it's permanently saved in there. So no matter what, no matter who the guest is, there's a little confused. But like, did you guys have a chance to catch up in Orlando just last week? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we talked some. It was nice seeing you. I, I was I was surprised. I was like, oh my god, hi. Yeah, you're re- repping the brand. Do you have a, Do you have a, the, a brand shirt with the sleeves on? Or are they all, oh, oh, that one right there, of course. I don't, have a, I don't have a gray. I should grab one. The yellow is nice, though. The yellow, man, that was my least favorite choice. Kirk's like, we got to have it. Like, it's just, come on. It's so cliche. It doesn't look, no one likes yellow, and it's my favorite shirt. But it's the brand. I'm a fashionista. I have vision, guys. <laughs> Colorblind vision, but it worked. That, yeah. I have this new tattoo, and like the yellow contrast really well against it and i really like it so i'm like wait let me see that thing what is that it's a hot Holy dog smoke. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot dog is that a hot dog in a bed of roses yeah so it's like a, an american traditional style of tattoo which is like you know usually like clipper ships or like knife and dagger or like the heart with like the mom you know like old school yeah. sailor tattoos this is a hot dog it's because we have uh it's because of for our dachshund that it's, is a, it's a dog tattoo you got a satirical tattoo. I do. In a visible place. I have that. And it like it like looks like a serious tattoo, right? Like it yeah. looks like it's done well. It's not one of those wasn't cheap. Sketchy. It's funny, so I'm gonna pay twenty bucks for it. No. Like a smiley face on my ass or something. No, no, no. This is like a re- legit artist who does legit American traditional tattoos. And I was like, hey, could you do a hot dog? And she was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, great. <laughs> Why is there no mustard on that hot dog? There's there's mustard underneath. It's ketchup on the top. There's oh, I see. Okay, see yeah. how the mustard, mustard's under there. I do. Okay. I was just making sure you weren't like psycho or anything because mustard belongs on a hot dog. So, so where you guys are, do, do you get Chicago influence on the hot dogs? Or are, are, are you guys in your own hot dog space? Like, Or does all the Midwest kind of have chicago dogs around like with the tomatoes or the pepperoncinis or whatever's on there uh you almost every place around here either has on their menu the chicago style options or they call themselves a chicago style hot dog stand or shop so it is around oh yeah but but kirk you're saying mustard just is the move no matter what on most everything that requires a bun yes we we had a tradition on Sunday mornings in college. We'd go to Dapper Dogs, 
and it was it was like a dollar ninety nine per hot dog, and then you just load it up however you want. And that was the that was the morning after cure for a lot of people at UW Whitewater. But Dapper Dogs had everything you could think of. It was almost like a nacho place, but for hot dogs. Now, is that does that lead to better quality, or are they all kind of mediocre? And and when if it's near a college campus, like in college, you think the food around the campus is like good and like awesome, but like really it's all kind of trash. So does that, that lower the quality of the hot dog? Now, when you talk about quality of hot dog, it's kind of an oxymoron of a question. I, I understand that there's a hierarchy to hot dogs, but to me, the purpose of a hot dog is taste. And so like, I know there are, there are elite hot dogs, but I want elite taste. And I don't care if that comes from nacho cheese and chili on top or just some, some ketchup and it's charred at a, on a fire. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not an elitist. So you think a hot dog, no matter what can, can serve its purpose. There's not like, you don't have to niche down. Like I think pizza is that way. If you're offering several styles of pizza, they're probably not going to be that good. But if you have like one style of pizza, it's going to be awesome. But you think hot dogs, it's not that way. You don't have to perfect a hot dog. Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I'm not a hot dog purist. I see. Who who's the hot dog purist out there? I don't think it there's sounds like rich. I think <laughs> I need, I don't really like hot dogs that much, but I think I need to start to like really like hot dogs, like and just like make it my thing, just because I have it. Like <laughs> you should start body. a second podcast about hot dogs, Rich. I wonder what that. I wonder how crowded that is. More or less crowded than the OCR space for 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 podcast. I bet it's less crowded, but I bet the people who are in it really know their stuff. I'd be posing for a while. Because I feel like hot dogs, you wouldn't start a podcast about hot dogs unless you are so passionate and you are super knowledgeable because there's there can't be any money to be made on a po- hot dog podcast. So it would be a passion project. Yeah, I'll have to do some market research on this. I'll get on the Apple uh, boards to see what the t- best ranked one is and start doing some research. I'm sure there's one out there. You just you just look. It's like the ba- backyard barbecue podcast. And I bet you they got a lot of hot dog knowledge. There's definitely, there's definitely at least one. Listen, we, I would feel real ashamed if we got to like 10 minutes still talking about hot dogs. Um, but I do want to start. We have Rich Ryan on. Rich Ryan of the Reinforced Running Podcast. Rich, it feels like, does it feel like this is the correct roundtable, Bracken? Like us three just chatting. When this happens, I feel like there's no host and no guest. This is an amorphous podcast. No one owns it. It's just three, three buddies chatting, running, and training, and hot dogs. That's how it should be. I agree. It feels natural. It does. This belongs. Before we get to Rich, I just want to um, I want to ask you about your shoe wall, Bracken, because you have a new guest star behind you, and I look at that shoe wall a lot. Well, first of all, I changed the order of the entire shoe wall. Oh, well, maybe you're just throwing me up, but there's one shoe. There's over two your new shoulder. ones, though. I can see one for sure. Is it color-coordinated? It's, it is it is without being totally, because if it's too color-coordinated, it's it's distracting. It's still distracting. Yeah, it's it's still like, wow, look at all those shoes. Those are. Beautiful. I want people to look at it, but I don't want them to be thinking about the pattern. I want them to be looking at the shoes. You know, you know what I think when I look at your backdrop. I just bought a new house, right? And I look at your shiplap behind you. That's what I admire. Actually, not shiplap. Your, your barn wood pallet wall. It's pallet, but shiplap is what I want to do in our well, our room that we're remodeling. So. Well, I didn't even know what the word shiplap meant until about three months ago, but now I'm feeling like yeah, Rich is a hot dog expert. Now I'm a shiplap expert. So, is there just nails in those pallet boards, or what? Like, is it an actual slat wall, like at a running store? 
<laughs> you should pan so he can see how like you have it just set up right. So sorry, listeners, you can't see this. It ends right there. And it ends right here. I, it's a very small room I'm in, so it ends top and bottom. It's more like a poster. Ah. It's a piece of art. It's not a wall. It is a piece of art. I was just thinking that. I was like, I wonder like how many I could get on the wall. Like So yeah, we nail gunned the pallet boards to the wall. And then after after messing around with plexiglass holders and many things, we just put long nails into it. Yeah. And they're invisible once the shoe's on. Okay, so I just want to get to your new shoes on there really quick. I know you could spend the next hour talking about them, but which I can't see the one above, but what are the new shoes you got on your wall? We have the Saucony Endorphin Pro. Always been curious about that one. And the New Balance Fuel Cell RC Elite one. The names are getting as ridiculous as the shoes. The the foams, they just got to call out the foam somehow. Like it matters to any of the normal consumers who are not us three. Like <laughs> anyone has any idea like why they need to be called the whole the whole shebang. And I'm okay with that. It should just be then fuel cell speed, fuel cell distance, fuel cell tempo, not fuel cell RC Elite 1. I will tell you what. In the gym, we have two machines at my gym. One is called the Power Crunch 500 and the other is called <laughs> the Gravitron 2018. All right? And every idiot walking around the gym looking for something to do, be like, that's the Gravitron 2000AT. I want to get on that one. So maybe there's some weird consumer psychology. And I'll tell you what, people use the shit out of the Power Crunch 500 and the Gravitron okay. 2000AT. So that's just my turn. Two I think you should be able to put the shoe on and tighten it slower than it takes to say the name. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. And you're saying you should, there should be like the name should indicate what the purpose of it is as well, because they really they kind of do. They kind of. I, I want it one way or the other. Like Nike Streak, Nike Matumbo, Nike Vendelis. The purists knew what it was. It meant nothing to anyone else, but it was simple. But now you've got this five name. I either want it to be really descriptive, like Fuel Cell Pro, Fuel Cell Speed, mm -hmm. Fuel Cell Tempo, Fuel Cell Long Run. Super descriptive or super simple, but not a mix of both. Fuel Cell RC Elite 2. <laughs> the worst what New Balance was doing for a while was with the numbers. They still have some of the shoes like no, like the nine, the 1080s, right? And like they, yeah. the next models that would come out, I just, it, they were not descriptive at all in any way. And I would just have to like look at the shoe to try to figure out, like, is there a posting on this? What, yeah. what kind of shoe is this? They were really bad at names. For example, they had the 890, which was racier than the 1080. The 1080 was the big beefy training shoe. The 890 was like the tempo shoe, but then there was the 790, which was similar, but different from the 890. But you think, okay, as the number gets smaller, they get racier and lighter. But then the racing shoe is the 1500. And you think, okay, maybe that's about the 1500, like the mile, the track race, but then the 1400 exists as well, but it's heavier than the 1500. There's just no consistency. If you're going to number it, it has to be like a truck where 1500 is the the light version, 2500 is the super duty, and then the 3500 is the max duty. That makes sense. The only company that has it right is Innovate. Yeah. They at least have their grams, as very simply put, at the end of their model. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Interesting. Yeah. And pretty much every shoe, I believe, is based off of what it weighs, right? Yeah. it's a, The name is the sole, the, the lug type plus the weight. Nah. 
Um, do you want to keep talking about shoes or can we, can we move into, to rich, rich Ryan? You got to ask someone else. Cause you know, my answer. Are we talking about me? Yeah. Cause I, I will just, we'll, we'll just go. I will say two things. These are the two newest high rock slash deck fit slash stadium options. I'm testing right now. I'm interested. I saw your post today and I thought that was like with the weight and how they're kind of feeling for fast reps. And I really liked the episode that you guys did with the, the whole, like scientific research that you did Bracken. <laughs> I was like, this man is about science. And so I'm interested about those. Cause I'm thinking about this a lot too, because of getting more into the high rocks and decades. Like is how much of an advantage, like how much am I leaving out there? It's hard to tell right now. So Michelle Aiken, the, mm -hmm. the girl I did doubles with, I, I'm just going to like repeat the message I sent to her today. The fastest high rocks ready shoe in terms of it can hold up to the push and the pull. You're not going to blow yourself out of it. It's cushion, but it's stack height's not so crazy that you're tipping out of it would be the endorphin pro. I think that's the fastest shoe for high rocks, but it only has acceptable traction for the sleds. Mm. It's fine, but it won't be the best. The best traction for the sled is the RC elite. It's also probably the lightest shoe, but the way the nubs are on there, there are these triangle nubs. Mm -hmm. I'm holding it up to the screen that actually have like a two or three mil depth to it, maybe two mil, but they're individual. They grip into the carpet well, but because they're kind of hard, they're actually a bit slick on polished concrete. <sighs> yeah. You're, you're choosing between the two. Do you want to focus on the sled or do you want to focus on the run? If you're talking super shoes. Yeah. Otherwise you choose something like you did, which, and honestly, I don't think that endorphin pro will have any worse grip than, than your sketcher razor plus that you wore. Did you feel slick? Not, I mean, there was a little bit of slip on the carpet for the push. Um, but nothing that was so distracting or like frustrating, uh, the run, not as much. My legs felt beat up from the run. Yeah, they really yep. did. Um, but not too much. I, I don't know. I don't know though. We talked before or after, and I told you I did my last one in the Evo speed goat just because right. I had meniscus issues and I wanted cushioning, but light because eight by thousand on polished concrete is pretty damaging, especially once your legs are full of blood from the push and the pull. That's why I want, like, I want to do the alpha flies. Like, I feel I like know. the alpha flies would be the move, but like, but those turns so tight. I have pushed a sled and pushed and pulled a sled. Uh, at the gym I go to, the carpet was not dissimilar to what was at High Rocks. And, oh, good. I, and I was able to move it pretty well without really too much of a noticeable difference between the Razor 3. So okay. I was like, maybe I could get away with these um, because it would feel good on that concrete to run on that with that cushion. The, I, the best feeling on earth I could think of coming off of the stations would be the Alpha Fly. Mm -hmm. Now, the next percent tempo has been used by a couple people. One guy I coach uses it, and he said a little bit on the sled pull, he feels a little like he's tipping forward out of the shoe. Mm. But other than the shoe being loud on the pavement, he said it, it did fine. And he ran a minute faster cumulative in it compared to um, the Vomeros, what he used prior. Yeah, that's another interesting one too that I haven't had a chance to try on or try yet. God, I just don't want to, and I don't want to end up with a shoe wall like you. There's like there's that that shoe wall is just 
You don't want this? I don't, I don't want that many shoes. <sighs> no. Racken only uses like four of those shoes. The rest are like his, <laughs> from his glory days in college, and he just can't throw them What? Off. <laughs> I actively the Nikki use. Kennedy, the Ventilist. Two. Yeah. Three. Four. Um, <laughs> five. Six. Yeah. Seven. I have used all seven of those in the past six months. And you have how many? Double that on your wall, maybe? It's a wall of fame. I mean, not every player in the in Cantons, none of those players are still active. You can still celebrate them and their existence on this I'm, earth. I'm just saying. So you ran in the Skechers, right, Bracken? Yeah, Rich and I both same. did. Yeah. Oh, you, the same shoe I have. It's I have a green, the green one, but that's the same shoe, right? As Essentially, your black mine yeah. is the same as yours. Rich had the plus, right, Rich? You better believe I had the plus. What did Magita run in? He wore an old pair of Vaporflies. Originally, the original Vaporflies, yeah. There was enough grip on those to rip it up? He, You could see on the sled, I was watching both your feet. His sled push, he had a little bit more movement in his feet when he first started each sled. So at a dead stop, he had like three slipping steps where you had like one kind of two. But the pull, he looked really uncomfortable on the pull. Yeah, he said the pull was noticeable. He was muscling it because he couldn't plant his feet because he was like, he looked like he was downhill on like a, a calf stretcher machine in reverse, like a little block. Like he was angled down and his toes were wanting to come out of the front of the shoe. Yeah, I could see how that wouldn't be an advantage. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a great position to be in. You know, a shoe that people wouldn't expect that I would maybe wear in that race or a stadium. I fly on concrete in the VJ Max. I know that sounds crazy, but it's got good hard rubber grip the uh, turf, and I run fast in that thing. I don't know about you guys. I know it's heavy, but like it holds up. There's enough to it. Um, I love that shoe. I ran my last 5K time trial in that shoe on the roads <laughs> for kick, and I ran like 15:58. Yeah, and like 16 hours later, you had a stress fracture. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not accurate. Even close. <laughs> you're, you're a freak with that. I think for grip, you probably wouldn't find better, but there's. High rocks, the only thing I tell people is that it just hits differently in the race. There's no way to feel what it feels like until you do it. And once you come off the sled, the last thing you want is to take more of a beating from your shoe. Dude, I was just looking at some some splits and kind of looking at mine compared to David's and his run after the sled push, he put like 20 seconds on me in a thousand yeah. meters. It was unbelievable. And you know what? He did it almost all on the third lap. Oh, really? He was like, because you came on, you came into the, and I wanted to talk about this. You came into the pole 42 seconds behind him and you came off 10 to 12, wait, maybe 15 seconds ahead, mm -hmm. maybe even 20. And the first lap he had made up three seconds. The next lap he had made up three more and he was still like 12 seconds down and he made it all up on the third. After the pole or you're saying? After the pole. Because I got in his pole, like that run was about 12 seconds fast. His runs were consistently 12 seconds faster than mine until like the very end where I just like had nothing left. Um, but that's an interesting way that, that he was able to do that. His splits were so consistent. He was like at three, uh, between three forty seven and three fifty three, like the entire time. And his stride looked the same rep, probably two through eight were almost interchangeable appearance. And I know that's not how mine was when I did it. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, mine was definitely not that. From the after the sled push, like the first two laps on that, and you were there saying like it's gonna get better. I was like, I freaking hope. I hope this is not how this rest of this race is going to go. And it did get a little bit better. And that was my slowest run until after the lunges. But after, by, by then I was just out of gas. So for, for Magida doing that, like the way he's training and prepping for this, he's doing a lot of straight up simulations, it seems like, right? Like he's getting himself to the point of that fatigue through the simulation itself. To me, that's like, a, that seems like a tough way to train. You probably need to have your volume pretty high in order to, to maintain like a simulation every week. Right, it's a tough thing to sustain. It's yeah, tough to sustain, sure. right? And and he, but he likes that. He like kind of like gets geared up for it. Um, what do you think? Like, how could you get? Because I just did a workout just now before uh, the podcast day, and like trying to get to that point of fatigue and like trying to manipulate different things, and like the workout took almost two hours to try to get there, you know, <laughs> without without doing it straight through. So like, how can you like? What do you? How, what are some ways you've been thinking about trying to get to that point? Because the back half is it, right? Like the sleds are there; they're really a big barrier to kind of get through. But the back half is is kind of what you need to prepare for. So, like, how? Yeah. What do you think about that? Man, I've thought so much, and I just can't fathom doing what he did. He has simmed every. He has done a full high rocks in training every single week, according to him. He's done it like fifteen times. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Mentally, I don't know how he does it. And recovery-wise, I don't know how. Now, they're taking him like 55, 53 to 55 minutes each time. So it's clearly not – I mean, that's nine. He's on the treadmill. He's doing on the treadmill. Yeah, but even then, I mean, he's going 63 in a race. So that's eight to nine minutes faster in training. So it's not the full – like something is a little different there. But still, 55 minutes of a full high rocks. I don't know. Be doing like 10 mile tempos every week, you know, just like mm. hammering that over and over. I can't, I can't fathom that, <laughs> but I like, I, I think breaking it up. I think the only way I get there is it takes me multiple sled pushes mm -hmm. and multiple pulls. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, one of our favorite workouts, Kirk and I is that two, five, two, two minutes of drag or push five minute run, two minute rest. And it's like, five or six rounds of that, but every single round alternates between sled and pull, sled and pull, or three straight of sled and three straight of pull, because it's not until round two or three that I even get that full dead feeling. Yeah. I think, I think my concern with that is like, I mean, obviously Magita's doing great. So we're talking about him. He's doing something right. Right. But, um, he's got himself ready, but I see that like, you're going to reach a ceiling and you're going to get stuck there pretty quick. And that's like, not a bad thing, but like when High Rocks uh, Chicago comes up and that's really the one that matters, um, I think he's going to do great. But on the periodization front, like, you can't sustain that, right? So can he make it to the big dance and then reset and then rebuild again? Because that's like my my curiosity. I'm sure you guys think the same thing. but Yeah, and the way I kind of see how we could make progress is just with a proper taper. Like it doesn't seem like there could be much pro like progress made through tra training, but he's been banging at it so hard for so long that if he tapers himself down, like he's probably training and racing under fatigue because his volume so high. So if he brings it down, maybe that gives him a little bit. Um, my, my thought was that he would probably see some stagnancy eventually, but if you alternated weeks where you did a heavy versus a light, if you did a light with really fast running, because he says he does everything at 530 on the treadmill. 
if he had some lighter reps where he's doing higher intensity run, but then running 515, 510, 5 flat on the treadmill, and then some heavy days where you can barely move your objects and you're lunge walking with, a, he does 100 pounds, 115 now, and your sleds are 900 pounds instead of 800, and, and your farmer's carries are 100 pounds per hand. Uh, and then running at 545 or six minute pace in between just for more like skill work. But I even me I just mentally, I couldn't get up for 15 weeks of a full sim. Yeah. I don't know if it's been exactly 15, but it's, it's close. It's not far from 15. And like, uh, I just would, yeah, getting up mentally for it and not putting weight on each of those sims. Like, oh my God, I was 45 seconds slower this week than last week. Like I'm I, something's not right. And you know, like, that's just like kind of the trick that runners play, like to kind of sabotage themselves. Like every single run yeah. needs to carry weight. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like getting away from that and, and breaking it apart and, and, and doing all of the different things in order to improve on the skill of it. But that's why I wouldn't want to do a sim over and over. And Kirk, what, what did Mark and Dave do leading into Jacksonville for like eight or nine straight weeks? Yeah, Sims, in a sense. 5K time trial every week, starting at 1620 and moving down to like 1510 or something like that. Well, and every week they also did a compromise treadmill run session that lasted roughly 30 minutes of high intensity to sim the race. They did both every week. He was doing high rocks training with a 5K time trial every single week. So I think a lot of it's done at that 90% effort. It'd have to be because you couldn't, you just couldn't physically improve each week going 100%. But still, they, they seem to be wired mentally to... They feed off that, that gives them mental, almost just motivation and inertia almost where mm -hmm. for me, I feel like it would break me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. It's like hard to figure out, but, th but again, he, they're getting to that point for high rocks in particular. It's like, he's getting to that point that like he needs to get to on the back part of the race. He feels it so much where, and you can, and you can guarantee that you're going to feel it. Whereas if you're breaking it apart and trying, like you're not, you're, you could be 45 minutes into this workout and then not get there. We're like running. It's so much more simple, right? Like if you're doing, if you want to prepare for a 5k and you do like five by three minutes at sub 5k pace, like that last minute is probably going to feel like what you need to prepare for, for the last little bit of a 5k, right? Just by going, just by improving, just by going faster. Like you're just yeah. going to elicit that response. And high rocks is like, I don't really know what kind of response I need. I don't, I'm not really sure what killed me on this. I think it was the sled, mm -hmm. but it could have been the running. I did terrible on the, on the stuff that I thought I would do well on without really needing to prep. But like, I just didn't, I, I don't, I didn't necessarily feel that part. I'm not sure. It's compounding interest throughout the workout. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I was texting with Megita this week, asking him about his training said, I'd like to talk about it a little bit curious about it. And here's what he said. He's typically running about 60 miles a week which he's 193 pounds right now, 60 miles per week by itself is high volume for a 193 pound runner. Mm -hmm. He's doing one track workout per week. So he's got a quality interval session and usually one high rocks full simulation. So he's got 60 miles per week, two quality days, both of which are intense and long. Then lifting in some form five to six days per week, some heavy squats, some more set up like a Metcon with a salt bike in between, which by itself, a Metcon with a salt bike is, quality quality. Yep. is a quality workout without impact. Mm -hmm. Some workouts are more high rep sets like pull-ups, push-ups, or TRX rolls, vol rows, volume is high of running and strength. Also, do one day hard in my hybrid athlete program with about 75 minutes of intensity and compromised running work back and forth. 
and I pop into one or two of our hit classes per week, but a lot of low intensity on top of that. Every other week, I work some thousand meter intervals into a longish run, like thousand meters on, 600 meters for eight to 10 rounds. Three weeks hard, one week light, a lot of easy trail runs. He's describing a month of my work yeah. in a week. Right. His quality is so hot. The volume of his quality is insane. He's got three true quality days, two pseudo quality days, and then maybe some mixed Metcon strength work on top of his classes that he's taking. Now, let's say that's divided in half. Let's say when he's talking about some of those things, his 75-minute run is every other week and speed work is every other week. Now you've got one quality run, one quality sim, one quality Metcon, three to four other lifts and two hit sessions and another 45 miles of trail easy work. It's still a massive volume. So do you think that the volume that he's able to put in on top of that, like with running that much, like doing the low uh, aerobic work and then doing some of the non-impact Metcons th things, you're able to disperse your, your quality work and it not have the same impact that maybe doing like hard intervals on your feet would be like, and like maybe because the high rocks isn't just straight up running, it's not as damaging or is it just like your nervous system is going to get taxed to a point no matter what you're doing, that it's going to create fatigue. Like, but think about, well, think about like the, we don't know. The one thing we don't know is like the Hunter McIntyre approach is he's working at 80% on those days. So we're just assuming Magida's going to the well on all of these, maybe like the assault. Bike he says hard. I said, what are you, how, how, how are you doing those Sims? He says hard. <laughs> <laughs> hard is hard. Like, to me, that means 85% or higher. Here, we can just stop talking about Megiddo and we'll just have him on sometime. Let's, Let's bring just him chat on. it out. Just bring him I on. think we just, well, speculation normally goes so far. Now, he's always a, what would you call him? Not an exaggerator, but he speaks in hyperbole. Like it's always, you get a, you get the, the highest version of what he intends because he's passionate about what he talks about and he likes to, he likes to sell. He's that commentator. He's the hype man. Mm. So even if you dial it, I mean, if you take three quarters of that volume and that intensity, that's still a big week for anyone. Oh, no, that much intensity, that would kill me. <laughs> I would definitely be hurt. Kirk, mm -hmm. you? Me, I'd be, yeah, wheel, wheelchairing around, yeah. I, Bracken, you want to say something? I want to pivot the conversation. I'm ready to be done talking about other people. I just want to compare it to Hunter. I'll find because Hunter's <laughs> clearly the best in the world at this. David outruns him by a minute total over eight K's. So what is that? Eight seconds, seven, seven and a half seconds per thousand. He's putting on him with an extra 30 miles of running two runs and an extra quality session. So when you put all of that, like if you just put in the cost, if you add up that cost, that cost of doubling Hunter's run volume, doubling his intensity volume, earned him seven seconds per thousand, seven and a half seconds. To me, although David's spectacular at this, I would say it might have been at some point in there, there's a, a diminishing return on investment because he's losing that one minute on each sled alone. How much of that is a body composition issue though well a ton but like one leads to the other his body composition comes from volume yeah it's amazing that he can hold that much and still be and get bigger the catch-22 is that no one else that we know of can get to 212 pounds of hunter's body composition 
and still run under six minute pace after through fatigue. Like if Magida puts on another 10 pounds and then another 10, he doesn't run the way he does. And now they're even maybe, and maybe so it's Hunter has that one leg up on everyone, but still like their disparity and how they put their volume in is pretty interesting. Have either of you guys tried to put on weight while running a lot? No, not while running a lot. Bracken, you have? Yeah, uh, it doesn't. I, I, I visually put on weight, but the scale says it's very minimal mm. mm-hmm. because I end up burning more calories. And so everything shows more, but I don't know if I've ever put on more than two or three pounds while trying to run high volume. If I drop it just 10 or 15 miles per week, I can put weight on, but it's really difficult to be high volume and gain weight. Yeah. I mean, you want it to be a caloric equation, right? Like you usually like, oh, just eat more and you should be okay. But also it's like your body's going to prepare you and kind of put you a like it's going to make you lose fat if you're doing so much endurance training, right? It's going to try to make you more, more lean. Cause you don't need as much. Um, so I'm just like, just the signals that are going to be sent within your body. I don't know how, how that would go. Like trying to put on like 10 pounds, right. And yeah. still keeping your aerobic work up. Like, is that 10 the- pounds? You can't put on 10 pounds at 60 miles per week. I I don't know. Not of good, not of good weight. Not of, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Unless you do the bodybuilding thing where you set, clocks and you wake up in the middle of the night and you eat and it's your job. It would have to be an incredible amount of calories. Yeah. And an incredible amount of work. Mm-hmm. Kirk, I know you want to pivot, but I wanted to spend a lot of time on this to set up what we're going to talk about next, which is the disparity between what Rich has been doing in training and what the other successful people in in the DECA and High Rocks are doing. Because Rich, had you had one of the top 10 fastest debuts. Hmm. In high rocks, is that a Jack Bauer thing? Did he did he tell you this, or is this independent research? Did you do no, that? No, this, on your this own? is I, I've kept track of. Oh, is a mental know, is this a mental list, or is this yeah? Uh, oh, yeah. So if you look at Miami, Chicago, New York, on in North America, not a lot of guys break sixty nine minutes their first one. Okay, and you went sixty seven in a very difficult style where you tried you ran David down after the first after the. Uh, ski, you ran him back down and gave yourself a little bit of a deficit heading into the push and then probably had to overwork your push a little bit to mitigate his damages. And then you worked your sled and made up 42 seconds. Like you, you gave it early and you raced it rather than maybe running your best time. Mm-hmm. Cause I think you would have run a faster time had he not been there because you would have finished stronger. I'm not sure. Like I don't like leading into that sled, like into that race, I just thought I didn't even think of the race beyond that sled. I was like, I need to just finish this sled and then I'm just going to see what happens. Okay. And I needed to put a, the max effort that I could possibly put to move that sled for both of the sled push and pull. And I just wasn't ready for the back half. And like my running volume was actually pretty low and my running quality was almost non-existent for the past like four to five weeks. Um, so I think it was more of a fitness thing than uh, a str- like, yeah, I, c- I probably could have been smarter, but I don't know how I could have done gone easier on the sled, you know? Yeah, I get that. And, and I guess the, the, the prologue I was trying to make coming into this is that 
Dave was running way more than you, doing way more intensity. Hunter was actually running more than you and doing more intensity. Yeah. And you had one of the faster debuts with a lot of room for more in there. And you are on the opposite end of the spectrum with how you've had to train for this. And that's kind of where I want to start. Okay. Yeah. Kirk, is that copacetic? Yeah, for the most part. I, I, uh, I chatted with Rich about almost the same topic about a month ago on his podcast. We had a good mm-hmm. chat. You should go back and listen to that episode with Rich. But the concept was like performing well on low volume, low run volume. And you you had asked me a good bit about what I was doing and my philosophies. And and you chatted a bit on your on your philosophies as well. But we didn't really like sink our teeth into what you're doing specifically, I would say, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then that set us up. And then you went and raced and you raced well off of I don't know how many injuries you've had in your recent years after you kind of fixed your biomechanics and gait, but I think this is the first big one that's kind of got you for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so now suddenly here you are, typically up to a hundred mile a week athlete or eighty mile a week, who's I've never been, but you're one who actually came from there and now has had to like rework your mind frame, which is the hardest part when you're a high volume runner and then you step down. Like you, that's how you identify with your volume. And now that's gone. And then you go and perform since we chatted a month ago. And so to like set you up just a little more now, it's kind of like, let's reverse the roles here and talk about like how you got to where you got, because I think it's super interesting. Yeah. 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 And it's, and I think it was helpful to have these new type of hybrid races. Are you guys in on calling them hybrid races? So yeah. 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 Let's call them hybrid races. So I think the like having these hybrid races to train for and really kind of shifting away from, from needing to have my running volume as high to prepare for something like a, you know, a two and a half hour race. I think that was really helpful. Um, as I was injured and actually getting injured definitely helped me step away from that and do the things that I needed to do to move the needle the most, which was more or less doing strength work and doing skill work and doing my quality work on the runner and the assault bike or the ski erg or putting together like Metcon style training. What was the injury for the audience? So I hurt my butt somehow. I, I, I don't like, I didn't get any imaging done. I have this thing about it. Like whenever I'm working with an athlete and they go see somebody, the answer is always the same, right? It's like, just shut it down. Like, even if you have the answer, the the result always ends up being the same. It's like, just rest until it doesn't hurt. So I had this incredible glute pain and um, that I thought was uh, a sacral uh, stress fracture. Um, but that's just more like Googling around, but it hurts so bad. Like I couldn't put, I couldn't run at all, but I could row and I could lift and I could be on the bike. And it was nice to have it, be the type of injury that it was because it wasn't an injury that would, you know, how you, you deal with soft tissue injury sometimes like it's okay for like five minutes and then it comes back after five minutes. You're like, oh, okay, I thought it was better. And now I've actually made it worse. This one, once it was healed, it was healed, but it took about eight weeks to really um, come back around, which is also why I kind of thought it was bone because it was just better. And I was like, okay, now I'm in the clear. So, and I never ever, haven't had anything since um, on that. And then I did a DECA mile the week before DECA fit, which was uh, mid early May. And the next day I was just on like a 60, 70 minute run. And it felt like just something went in my hip flexor and my hip flexor didn't like, I, again, I didn't really look into this too much or like really kind of, I didn't want to diagnose myself with anything. I just knew it hurt. So I just didn't want to press into uh, any quality work. Really. Um, I wanted to get to, 
the Orlando High Rocks because I needed to just qualify for Chicago. So I didn't, there, it wasn't an option to push and potentially miss that race because that would be my season, right? I just needed to be there and just finish essentially. Um, so I kind of pulled everything back. So it's been hip stuff. It, it typically is hip stuff for me, like front and like the, the glute sacral thing was different and weird. Um, but I think that was from a lot of trail running and pounding downhills and just, you know, just like anything, not adequate rest, doing too much volume coming back. So that's kind of what I was dealing with on both ends, like little hip flexor, little glute stuff. Are you still managing that on like a day to day or weekly basis? Is it still firing up on you? Is that what's limiting you or is it you're just trying to be in quotes smart now and not do too much too soon? So I was being smart when leading into Orlando, but there was definitely some pain. Like I only had a pain-free run like the Thursday before the, the high rocks event. And I was like, okay, this is great. This isn't for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm good. And then high rocks didn't hurt, but I definitely took some ibuprofen to, to make sure it didn't hurt, but it hasn't really hurt since I've done two quality workouts this week where I've run pretty hard and it's pretty good. And I think, you know, when I, wait, 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 wait. You've done two quality already this week? Yeah, one was kind of uh, a little bit, yeah, just one was only about 21 minutes of quality work. And the, the one I did now was a, a, a pretty epic workout. Well, um, that shows you were relatively prepared because there wasn't an option for a full week after either of mine for me. I was a zombie who'd been run over by an ice cream truck. Was it physical soreness or was it like, like you couldn't get out of bed, like nervous physical fatigue. soreness. I was so sore. I felt like I just done Killington. Like with glutes and, and, and quads. How'd you feel this time? Were you just good to go? I, it was more acute this time. Huh. My, my inner thigh groin area and, uh, outer glute. And I think it was from, I think because I worked really hard in bursts and then recovered, I never accumulated that total leg deadness. Like I never got cramps or anything, but I think I hit the ground just harder on certain things like farmer carry, uh, burpee broad jump, lunges, rowing. I just worked faster. And so I think I got more acute little damage inside from, from being almost less stable because I was working so fast, but I didn't, I, I was, I ran Monday and then mm. I ran Tuesday and I lifted both days as well. And that was not an option after my previous two. Yeah, I did take, I took off Sunday. Uh, I had a long, I, I don't know the best, the best bet to do this. I've, I'm starting to fly back the day of the event mm -hmm. just cause I just want to be home, but it felt bad. Like the next day I felt like a disaster. Um, yeah. just like sleep was poor. It felt like I was hung over, but oh, I, yeah. wasn't. I felt hung over. Yeah. So, uh, but after a day off, I was, I was able to do a little bit of work Monday and then Tuesday I, I did some speed stuff and it felt pretty good. So. Okay. I don't have much time. I need to, I need to, I need to get to it. I only have like one or two more quality work cause I can feasibly stick in here. You know, if you had to, if you had to guess, um, if you were able to run the full volume you wanted to run and have your lead in look very different based on no injuries, uh, predicating what you're doing, does your gut tell you that you would have performed better or worse? Well, better. Yeah. I would hope if I could run more. So you, so you do think, you do think that, that you are only a, a lesser version of yourself because you can't run as much as you would like. And that you were saying before that focusing on the things that might've moved the needle more, it forced you to do so. So I guess I wanted to just hmm. nod that a little bit. That's what I'm getting at. 
Yeah. I, th- I mean, it's still an 8K of running, right? And it's still like a uh, the race took me 67 minutes, which if I was to race that over the course on the road, it'd be like 11 miles or something, you know? Yeah. So it'd be like a long race. And like, that's where I fell apart. Like the running part was really the hardest thing to like work after the sleds, just like, that's where I got my butt kicked pretty much. Like the stations were okay. Maybe I lost like 10 seconds here or there on the later ones. I lost a shitload on the farmer's carry and the, uh, the lunges. Um, just because I think I just wasn't, I just wasn't in shape. I just wasn't ready to handle it. And I think that, I don't know. And I think the best way to become more fatigue resistant across the board is through running. And even if it was, even if I could just match everything on the rower, I don't, and the quality was there. And I still think running is superior, just how to build endurance. Well, what do you, yeah. What do you think on that? Well, yeah, I agree, but I'm, I, I just, I'm like I said, I want to kind of like dig at this a little bit because if, if history tells us anything with you, um, even at your best running shape, you know, something's typically gone wrong, but you've never really had the breakthrough that you would like. And I would say you might've done more in this one high rocks on like the, the national scene than you have in your OCR, like go play in the mud scene. And most of your running, when you've been able to run those big Spartans, has come when you've been healthy and you've been able to run as much as you want, but like you, it didn't translate perfectly to the race course. Mm-hmm. And then you go and show up and do a high rocks, which is even like more OCR esque in a sense where like, yeah, obstacles in quotes or workout stations are actually blowing you up and you perform maybe, I don't know, a little better comparatively. So like, I, I feel like there's gotta be something there that we haven't like maybe sorted through yet. Do you, do you know what I'm getting at? Totally. Kind of? Totally. Well, the first thing is that it's been a year and a half of training that I've had since I've been able to race, you know, like realistically I'm a better athlete than I was like throughout all 2019 season. And Jacksonville was like a not very good race in 2019 for me or 2020, but, um, wasn't because of the physical part. Like I didn't have a whole season. Like I've been training really well and things are pretty dialed in from that respect. They just haven't really had a chance to, to compete. So I think I'm a better athlete than what I was, um, back in 2019 and high rocks and Decafit they're, they are different. They are like where, where I struggle in obstacle course racing. And we talked about this a little bit last, last time I was on or two times ago, it was, uh, it's the terrain. Like it's not necessarily the moving in and out of things. Like it's just like the skill of being on uh, the the trails and getting elevation and running downhill. I'm just not very good at. So when those are taken out and it's just about running compromise and and high end fitness, that's more in my wheelhouse. And I've kind of been training along. I thought, I thought OCR was going to be more like hybrid racing when I started OCR and it's not, it is like OCR is trail running and grip strength, you know, and this is not that this is high end fitness and strength. So it, I think this is more in my, my wheelhouse. It's funny that you say that because your first OCR race or two, you're like, this is the ultimate proving ground of athlete versus runner. And then by your second or third or fourth one carries, don't blow you up. Mm-hmm the rigs don't leave your arms at your sides for a half mile. And suddenly you realize as soon as you get those basic skills down, it's trail running with grip. It's running. It's distance running. Yeah. Whereas you come into a, a stadium still 
or a DECA or a high rocks. And you realize this is that meeting ground where even in stadiums, engine still wins mm-hmm. to some extent, like a big stadium, like AT&T in Dallas engine wins. That's a mountain sprint, but the other ones and this stuff. Yeah, you're right. The skill of running matters less in, in the, the work work engine matters again. I think there's tactics. Like I think like, Bracken, even if you and I, if my fitness was superior to yours in a stadium, like your experience to, to know how to do it would, would supersede the fitness. You'd be able to make up that ground or in, in hybrid racing. I don't think so. To what Kirk's saying though, I think there's something to it because I, I've watched enough high rocks and I've done enough to know what the stations feel like and what it exposes if you're not ready. And the way you pulled the sled is not something you could have done at high volume running because I don't think you would have spent as much time on it. Maybe I could be wrong, but the overall fitness you had and the overall just musculature through the core and through your hips and through your back and shoulders, you put work in on the sled that uh, 80 to 100 mile per week runner wouldn't have been able to do. So you lost some running, but my guess is you didn't lose time at this race. Because I think had you not got hurt, you would have run faster for a while and blown up more. I think when your running comes back now, the work you've put in is going to buoy your running and you're not going to have like scramble to get back. Your running is just going to stack on top of it nicely. I think so too. I think, I think that that's right. And I think that like to, to Kirk's point is that I did, I was able to spend a lot more time focusing on those things where that time may have been filled with running. And I've done that in the past where I've leaned on running just cause I enjoy mm-hmm. it. And it's just a little bit easier for me to do than putting together these workouts or going to where I need to go to get these high rocks workouts in. Like running is just like fun and nice, you know, and it's easy. And I know it, I, I know how to, how to do it. I know how to get faster. I know it's going to work, but not having that, you know, it's like, okay, now I got to spend time on the rower to build the aerobic engine up and, and spend a lot more time working on the skills of it and doing a lot more sled stuff, doing a lot more strength because I was doing pretty, pretty strict periodization and, and with my strength work for probably about 12 weeks, which I haven't necessarily done. I think ever, like usually my strength work had been a lot of work around, uh, like Metcon based or more CrossFit style where maybe it's an undulated progression, but nothing that was like, progressive overload with the idea of improving my strength and then potentially improving my, like moving into like hypertrophy training, which I'm going to do after the, uh, the Chicago race. Like, let's just see what happens doing straight up hypertrophy work. Like, let's see how yoked let's do it. Um, because that's, that's, that's definitely something I need to do as well. Cause that's also like Megiddo weighing 190 versus me weighing like 170 being gracious on that. It's, it also matters. <laughs> it also really matters. And that, and 170 is bigger than what I would have been if I would have been running leading into it. So I think that from that respect, like you're probably right. I probably would, wouldn't have performed as well because I would have had a hard time even getting to 170 from where I was before. I mean, think about that weight, that 20 and he was 170, uh, 192, 193, he said. So 23 pounds, that's 23 pounds of pressure he gets to put against the sled before he starts even exerting himself that you don't get to. Mm-hmm. So if you look at why he can come off it and run 12 seconds faster per K, it might be that 
there were 23 pounds of pressure you had to exert more than him just to match him. Like what percentage of your overall strength? Like if you were doing a lift, let's say push press or back squat or, or Bulgarian split squat, which I think those three relate to the sled, adding 23 pounds to that, what does that do to you? Like that's, that's a noticeable weight and he wouldn't have felt though. He would have just leaned into it with 23 more than you did. Now right. it's, that, that's making it a little more cut and dry than it is, but it's a real tangible piece. And it paints a picture, right? Like if that was the case, I would, I would be able to do way less than he would be able to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you load up that much more weight on me than, than he would have, like he would be able to do way more reps. And this was over the course of how many, however many steps or 50 meters of work, it was hard. I got real tired doing that. <laughs> and then the pull the same way. I was like, Oh my God. Uh, I thought I was, and I had to exert everything. So getting stronger in those stations and not needing to exert 95% of my effort, if it could just be like 92, that'd be great. So that's the idea. So, I mean, maybe, and I was interested in seeing how this would actually then parlay into like a trail mountain run, uh, OCR event without necessarily even doing much of that, I'm guessing it would still not translate very well. So I don't think I would do better because of the way I was training for this in, in like a Palmerton race or there's that Bethel race this weekend. If I went to that sprint, like I don't know how well that would go. I, I'm just, I think I'm not taken back, but you're talking about like getting done with high rocks champs and going into a hypertrophy phase that doesn't scream all into this shit i don't know what does you're talking about an endurance athlete going into a hypertrophy phase so you're in huh like this is you got the bug this is what you want to focus on it to me i like this style of training if i'm going to spend my time doing a lot of work like i like trail running i like mountain running I just like running, you know, like wherever it is, like I'm going to do it. I like it. I like spending time in the gym. I like lifting weights. I like doing it, that high intensity stuff more than I like going rock climbing or going to a ninja gym or like doing fast workouts on the trailer thing like that. Like the accessory work, I like better for these hybrid races than I would for uh, uh, an obstacle course race. That makes sense. So that means you're in You're. I mean, that's, that's the focus. That's the A- focus the rest of the year and then anything else you do will be like secondary or tertiary as far as you see roll the dice and see how you perform but it all doesn't really matter because right now you got your sights on on the fitness racing as some would call it yes and that's where and it makes it nice right like to have that be the place where i want to spend my time it's like okay i can do races like west virginia and not have to worry about it so much (laughs) and not have Mm -hmm. to get so stressed out about them and doing these hybrid races is way less stress stressful because they're indoor. I know what all the stations are. I don't have to worry about the weather. I don't have to worry about falling off of stuff. It's just like whatever, however much work I can put in to create fitness, that's going to be, it's going to pay out on, on race day, you know? So yeah, let's, let's do a hypertrophy phase. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> well, and there has to be some logic to that too, or you've put in months and years of training and what's your best finish at a big OCR race? Yeah, like 10th. And you put in weeks of training and at a big DECA, what did you take? I won the DECA. Right. So like if you put in one year of perfect training and you showed up to North American champs or, or worlds in OCR, what would you be thinking? How many people on this planet could challenge you 
at like an Abu Dhabi or something or at, yeah. is that what you're saying? Oh. Yeah. Or, a, or a West Virginia. Do you have a list of how many people that would be? Of who would definitely beat me? Definitely beat you or challenge you. How many, how many deep do you think that list would be? I mean, I couldn't rule out. I couldn't, it couldn't be less than like 20. Okay. So what if you put a year into DECA and they held a world championship, what would that number be? Like two. <laughs> when you can count and name the people who have the ability to beat you, you know, you're, you're part of something. And then it'd be as a competitor, it'd be hard not to go into a, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see where this goes because I can bang my head against the wall for 10th or the, maybe I pop a race and get my third or second or first, like we think you can, or I can show up to my, this is guaranteed to be good for me. And this is something I've done a lot of work around. Um, like the, when I think back to the 2019 season, like where I was like, I'm all in, I'm doing the, the series. I'm going to go to all of them. It was all based around outcomes, right? Like I just wanted to go to see what place I could potentially get and see what would happen. And like, I, and a lot of those races, I don't feel like I put myself in the position to give it everything I had because I was so concerned about where the outcome was or what, what else was happening around me. And uh, this past year, and this is what was nice about a, a year with no races for me is to really kind of put things in perspective and being like, all right, are these outcome based like goals? Are they really what are, are really what I want to, to strive for? Right. Like, and it would be nice to, to, you know, get on the podium at the high rocks world championship or win a decade world championship or whatever. But like, I just like that training. Right. It, I, and it just speaks to me more than what, like, so it'd be nice to get, podium in Spartan world championships as well. If I could train the way I like to train, which is more for high rocks and Deca. So it's like putting it back and putting it more into the process of things. And that's kind of how I've been trying to approach these races as well. I got real stressed out like about a week before Deca, like trying to visualize like, okay, if everything goes well, I, I, I could win this thing. And then I was like thinking about winning and that's, that's really where my head was. And I started to kind of freak myself out a little bit. And then I just put it back. It's like, listen, it doesn't matter. Like just do whatever you can to put your most, like the biggest effort that you can forward and whatever the outcome is, it's fine. And in years past, like I wasn't completely ready for this Orlando race, right? Like I could have just, I sh like in years past, I wouldn't have done it because I wasn't completely ready to do as well as I possibly could, but I knew I just wanted to go there and, and do as well as I could. So if I got first, great. If I would have got like 10th, fine. Like as long as I know I pushed everything out there, and during the race, it was like, like I was, I was able to kind of stay engaged better than I had previously in races if I was getting my butt kicked, but physically I just kind of ran out of gas. <laughs> so, um, and that's something that has been a, a real like shift for me and like trying to get away and just trying to make myself a happier athlete because the 2019 season was nice, but like I was kind of miserable. A lot of it, like I put my, I was doing things I didn't really want to do. I was putting myself in over my head and kind of, and I got hurt a bunch of times and still raced on top of it and just doing chasing elevation for the sake of it. And like not really listening to my body, just doing things I thought I needed to do to get the outcome that I wanted. Um, so that's, and so when I look at it, the big picture, I'm like, okay, then hybrid racing is where I need to go because it's just like, it's where I'm happiest. Yeah. yeah I can make sense of all of that. Easy enough. I, I, I want to talk tangibles, though, because we still didn't get to it. Uh, kind of what I wanted to hear from your perspective. And that is, you know, I feel like it on your at the episode that we chatted and then maybe a bit on our podcast, I've somewhat spoken at nauseum about like 
how to run well when you aren't running a lot, right? <laughs> and so I, so I just kind of want to hear your quick like take on your lead up and what your philosophy was on minimal mileage and how you broke that down to, to I guess, I don't know, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of time. So I wanted to share what you did and what your thought process was and why you think it worked maybe. And so, and Brack and I, we touched on this a little bit when we spoke down in Orlando. So I, I really did approach it because I knew I was going to be able to gain strength and I wanted to make sure that that translated to running. So then I needed to really kind of focus on the skill aspect of running. So doing things like, like really focusing in on drills, doing faster sprints, doing some hill sprints, doing really short effort, uh, high effort work for really short duration, which is something I haven't really done in the past, you know, like 50 meter sprints, you know, uh, hill sprints for 10 seconds, like things that are just going to really maximize the power output of my run and make sure my mechanics are in the right place because I couldn't do five minute intervals to like maximize my uh, aerobic fitness or my like lactic threshold or whatever that work was being taken care of on the assault bike or the, the rower. Well, I want you to break that down too, but yes, for sure. So like that, that was where like my, my, uh, endurance work, my fitness work was on the machines. And then if the skill work on the running was still up to par and I was able to produce as much if I could keep my power to weight ratio or improve that as I got stronger by keeping my, my running form in, in check, keeping my like power output where it needed to be by doing the sprints. But my idea was like, okay, then this should blend well, like then the running skill should be there and the fitness should be there. So when it's time to race, like they should all kind of come together, uh, where, where it fell apart from, and this is one thing about the high rocks result is like, it just fell apart because my body fell apart. I didn't have enough base of training on my feet to, to, to like manage that much load for that long of time. So like there needs to be some running base in there for me anyway. And that's where I kind of missed out. So I could probably, I could handle a DECA, right. Which is 5k by training that way, which isn't that long, but for longer events, I, I, I don't think I would really be able to do, do it that well. Um, there's a level of impact in a high rocks that is like time and a half to two times the duration. A 60 minute race shouldn't beat you up and leave you feeling the way you feel trying to run on your sixth, seventh, and eighth thousand meter repeat. And the, the pace gets down to like marathon pace or slower. Be slower. Right? Yeah. By the end, you're almost running a high end aerobic Dude. pace. Yeah. <laughs> 5K effort. Totally. And that's what happened. Even like the first couple, like you said, I ran down Makita and, and tried to put it out there. Like it wasn't that fast. That running was not very fast. It was like, 545s, you know, like now those thousand meters are not totally accurate and you're making 90 degree turns mm -hmm. on polished concrete. You're the, I would have guessed that Dave was running 520 to 530 most of the day and you were running 540 by the end, 545. In terms of effort? In, in terms of how it looked. Oh. Like stride wise, you guys look like you started off at about 515, 525 pace. So it, it, it doesn't, I don't, I trust their splits. Like I trust triathlon splits. You know, it's a, it's a guesstimation at best. Like how are they tracking their distance indoor? Are they taking a wheel out or are they pacing it? Or are they taking a GPS watch? Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't buy it, but anyways, it centers between half marathon and marathon pace. Right. Which isn't that fast, but it does, it just shows like what the effort does to you. Right. You know? So that's where I've kind of fell apart. I just didn't have that kind of 
base uh, of work in. And, and so Kirk on your end, when you were doing this, did you, have you not felt this like that your body like can't handle? Cause you're doing big workouts, right? Like I haven't been able to do very big workouts on my feet. Um, you guys are almost the exact opposite of the same plan. Kinda. You're well, both running infrequently, but Kirk's hitting it huge and you're doing easy running and skill sprints. Mm -hmm. But you're hitting huge days on cross training equipment. Yes. And you're still doing that. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted you to break down. Like in your mind, if you are, so it's, you're having a hard time running the volume you want coupled with the quality you want on feet. So instead you're doing that on other modalities. So like, what does your week look like? Like is most of your running easy aerobic running and you're doing some of that biomechanical efficiency and skill work coupling it with real purposeful cross training. So like, what do those cross training bouts look like? Yeah, because this is also, it's also hard to get in a lot of quality work if you don't have a base of work on these machines is what I found, right? Like if you don't spend time on the rower, your body's going to break down and you're just not going to be able to do it. So like I've been able to kind of do my easy runs and then I'll do easy aerobic work on the rower or the ski or the bike, just so that I can be prepared to hit these workouts even harder. And what I've found is that just because I don't have the whole, like this whole big base, these years of training on my body for running is that the intervals are much shorter that I can really withstand on the rower. So like I want to train it in like threshold manner, right? So I would do minute and a half at like what would be a threshold pace, a comfortable hard pace, but I would just take the rest much shorter. So where typically if I was to do like a threshold workout, um, it would be, you know, a mile and then a minute where this is like a minute and a half to two minutes and 20 or 30 seconds of recovery. Um, just I like that. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not, I'm able to handle that much time at that intensity on the rower without my body breaking down. Or if I was to do like a 10 minute interval at threshold pace on the rower, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I think I, my form would fall apart before anything else. So I wouldn't be able to get that full duration of threshold work in on the machine. So they're much smaller. Um, and the assault bike, you're on the assault bike a lot. So like, just on it before we started recording crushed me. And like, it just goes, if you go too hard, your workout's over. So like trying to figure out how to do that. And that's something that just goes real fast. Like you get anaerobic, like real quick. So same thing, like, where's that line between where my body's going to fall out and where I can maintain. So did the same type of thing, like 30 second intervals, minute intervals, 20 second rest, like, and just doing that for a set of like eight. So I'm able to get the amount of volume in, but it's just kind of broken up with shorter interval with shorter rest periods. But you're not doing any long grindy stuff. Not really. And you're getting a heart rate response you want out of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So just to be more specific, like let's say oh Tuesday and Saturdays were quality days, like you're still now your running is revolving around your cross training cardio days. So the cross training cardio days are like priority number one, would you say, as far as fitness building and you're formulating those days? uh, accordingly. Is that, is that what I'm understanding? And they're still in that pattern. They were until just like a couple weeks prior. Now I'm being much more race specific. So I'm doing a lot more things on like the sleds, but like my aerobic work after the sleds is usually on the rower or the skier. Like, right. Like today, my workout that I did, I did like three, uh, two rounds of kind of what I just said, 500 meter skier, 30 second rest. Um, 
uh, with like a two minute recovery after like three, three sets of that. Um, and then I went into the sled push and then I ran a little bit after cause I'm feeling better, but a lot of times it'd be like sled push then onto the rower to get that aerobic work to kind of work there and then doing burpee broad jumps or whatever, whatever the mixture is, it's going to be a little bit more race specific. Um, that that's kind of what it's been previously. But before that, as I was building my base, like, yes, like I would, I would run, maybe do some skill work on the running. And then I would sit on the rower and do that workout where it'd be essentially like an eight minute period, but like having broken up by 30 second, uh, it'd be like eight by one minute with 20 seconds rest. And, um, and that would kind of be how that's where like my Tuesday workout would be. And then Friday would be to something similar skill work first and then ski or, or assault bike, something similar. And I would really kind of crank it down. I really wouldn't go f- like longer. I was really trying to work in that anaerobic to kind of get that power output. So if anything, I would do 30 seconds hard, 30 seconds rest, 30 seconds hard, 30 seconds rest, or like descending rest. So I can kind of put myself in that anaerobic space. I didn't really do those longer grindy ones. Um, and I think I was preparing for DECA mostly at that point. So with the idea of like a 30 minute uh, race was for that where, where you're going longer, right? Cause you want to prepare for you like a 50 K or a Spartan. So you're doing, so are your bike, are your bike workouts like 10 minute intervals? Oh, like one I did last week or two weeks ago before my last ultra was a four mile buy-in on the assault bike, three minute rest, then super, super hard, like half mile repeats with 30 seconds rest. And then a four mile buyout like at tempo threshold effort. So there's like a lot of work being done there. Yeah. What are your RPMs like with, on something like that? Like what is your, your four mile buy-in? How long does that take? Like 20 minutes or I don't know. I don't even know what that. No, four mile buy-in would be like, four mile buy-in would be like 10 minutes. I was shooting for the nines. So like 10 minutes worth of work. But, but regardless, what I'm just trying to get at with you is like, you, you're not doing, you haven't done any run work. Like what's the most volume you've put in quality on your feet in training leading up to this? Because the proof is in the pudding. Sure, you think you can do better, but you're barely doing quality run work. And that's just what I want to get at because like we have this conversation so much and it's like you can't run as much as you want. You just throw your hands in the air and you're like, it's not even worth it. Like cross training, it doesn't get you anywhere. Well, you're wrong and it does work. Um, as long as you do it with purpose. And so that's what I'm just trying to like get across with you. And so like on the run front, how much, how much quality run work, like what's your biggest run work that you've done and look at the results you've got. So that's what I want to know. Yeah. This year, starting in January, cause that's where I really got hurt. It's probably been three by mile at like threshold. That's your biggest. That's my biggest workout. Where a normal threshold would be six to eight by mile at threshold. Yeah. So I wanted to do three just to see like how, how it felt and I can get a good barometer for what kind of fitness I'm in. Like I knew like, like my volume wasn't high enough to do six, right? Like that would just been crazy where my longest run was seven miles, six or seven miles before that. Um, and I just want to get a barometer for what my fitness was like. And then my pace was pretty solid on that. I was able, so when I'm at like last year, I think I was in the best running shape that I was ever in. Right. And, and my threshold pacing, then what I would consider threshold would be, uh, was right around like five Oh five probably. And I was able to run. Oh, totally. <laughs> me too. My five K PR is five Oh two per mile. Is it? <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, like the end of last year, that's where my, my threshold kind of was. So that, and this three by three by mile that I did must've been March. 
I don't know. Um, no, no, no. April, whatever. Um, was it like five tens? And I was able to have like a minute rest and repeat that and feel like comfortable. And I've done it so many times now. I kind of know where that is. I'm sure you guys can relate, but that's, um, so like the, the fitness was there, like it held on. I, I was ready for it to be like, I was like, okay, if I can run like five thirties, I'd, I'd be pumped. But I found myself at five tens and I was like, okay, cool. Okay. Let's keep jumping on your back here. But, um, so you put in 15 minutes of quality run work in total in your biggest workout yet you go and then perform for 67 minutes and sure you hit a wall. Everybody hits a damn wall and high rocks at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that just is like, I don't know, kind of profound in my eyes. You did 15 minutes of hard run work yet. You ran an eight K, which is five miles worth of hard run work mixed in with all these other modalities. So, you know, what, what is, what is the key there? Like if you had to break it down, is it, I'm working the proper energy systems in the proper durations and then just matching that with, the skill work of running. So I'm at least efficient at fast paces, even though my fitness hasn't been built that way necessarily. Like, is that what we're talking about? Is that what you believe? Probably the latter. Yeah. Like having the efficiency of running, uh, coupled with the, the endurance builders of the, the machines, um, I think did kind of get me to this point. Um, and with the strength with, and, and coupling it with the strength, I don't know exactly how to measure how fast, how much faster, like, my deadlift or back squat would really have made me. But I think coupling it with the skill work is just a way to make sure that the work that you're doing in the gym is going to uh, translate to the road. And like, if you think about it, that whole like power to weight ratio, like if your weight goes up and your, but your power goes up and your skills are still on point, like there's no reason you should get slower. At least that's the way I see it. Um, so I think it was a little bit of that. Um, but yes, Kirk, you're right. It would have been, would have been great to not have my like longest, fastest run be in the middle of a high rocks. That would have been then. <laughs> so like it got me to this point that I, that, and it got me, has gotten me good results to here, but I don't necessarily think it's an optimal way to train for this. Like, I think there's, there's a piece for it. And I think I'll keep a lot of these pieces in place, especially for a longevity. And that was like the conversation we had was a lot, it was a longevity conversation, right? It's like, how do I keep adding things in and how can I, stay at the highest level of my game where I might not be able to do the work that I would have been able to do a couple of years ago and recover from. And this is just a really nice piece to be able to lean on. And, and I'm going to start blending them, right? Like doing threshold work on the rower and then doing threshold run and doing a threshold run right after, right? Like to see mm -hmm. how those things are going to kind of blend together. So this is just like another tool that I can have in my toolbox to, to roll out for whenever I, I might need it. Um, but yeah, not a ton of running work done <laughs> 15 minutes of uh, a threshold um there's room to room to build for sure hmm. okay i'm happy with that i know bracken you probably want to get to the next thing i just think there's a lot of power in that because like my longest run within four or five weeks of my 50k was two hours and then i went out and ran four plus hours but i supplemented with the right stuff in between and there's power to just time uh, it, where you need to put time in physiologically, like your body's getting the same adaptation on like a cardiac output and stroke volume and yes. respiratory rate level. And so you just couple that with the right amount of running. So your body moves efficiently and, and it's very powerful. And so I just think, and then if that means staying healthy for longer and being able to being consistent in that front, 
that way out trumps being able to run 60 miles a week, but then getting injured every four months and starting over. Right. And I, I totally agree. And that's one thing I didn't necessarily mention was the amount of volume that I was doing across the board was, was still pretty high. I mean, I was work, I was putting in 12 to 14 hours total with strength work and probably 11, 10, 10 and a half to 11 of that was more like on the aerobic or endurance side. So it's still like a lot of stuff. I wasn't just hitting hard rowing intervals. I was sitting on that thing a long time. I was sitting on the bike for a long time. Um, so volume is still present uh, without just like needing it to be intense all the time. So I think it's important to note, to note as well. I think this whole conversation got us to probably the biggest takeaway for the every man that'll come out of this, which is when you are new to running, you don't have to worry about trying to hit volume right away. Mm. Whether you do it the Kirk style or the rich style, like when you come in, you can't run 80 to hundred miles a week unless you're a freak of nature. And even then it's, it's not smart. You can run 10 or 15 or 20 or 30, but it doesn't mean you can't hit 10 hours of work. The 10 hours of work you did probably left you feeling better than six hours of really nasty running. Yeah. And it's something that I think it is a good takeaway to have is that you can accomplish these things and build these pathways and, you know, improve your stroke rate, like by doing more work that doesn't necessarily need to be running. And I think a lot of people, you know, for a good reason, come into the sport who might not have the running background and just want to pound it, right? They need yep. to get better at running. They want to hammer it, you know, and, and we're, we're lucky because we've had this huge base of training for our entire lives. So people see us and they're like, oh, I just got to run as much as they do. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's the case. And I think you're right on with that. And, and we, I think one of the biggest issues in run training, and I truly believe this outside of running too hard every day is worrying about mileage rather than volume. Mm -hmm. As we runners, we look at, we have mileage in a vacuum and then sure there's training hours and there's lifting and there's core or whatever, but it is running mileage and then everything else. Whereas if you came into the sport totally new and you just looked at it as a pie chart or a pie graph of hours you would start with taking up maybe a quarter of that with your running. That's us hit 10 hours a week of training or nine. I think nine's a number a lot of people can hit in a normal week. Seven to nine is like the every man can hit seven to nine. So if you called it eight, if you could run for two of those hours and then strength train for two and bike and row or whatever else for the other four, you'd hit 10 hours of work and you could go out and do races off that. And then by the next year, if you're up to three to three and a half hours of that, and eventually running just takes a bigger part of your chart, of your graph. But usually we start with, we're going to try to hit the most running we can get. And maybe that's 20 miles that first year, but that's only a couple hours per week. And then as you add more training in, you're also adding hours and impact at the same time. You're not really giving yourself the ability to just, I'm already working. I'm only adding in more running impact you're adding in more work and more impact at the same time. And I mm. believe that's where people get into trouble is I could handle 20. Why can't I handle 40? And I started a lifting program that should help strengthen me, but it's all new stress rather than just repurposing the hours of the stress. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I've seen it over and over and I've definitely fallen and fallen to this trap in terms of programming for people who have, may have a goal that is running based. Right. And, and just on like the run coaching side of thing, it's like, I want to run a half marathon at this pace or, or a marathon at this pace. And really they can only handle base work for probably a year. But it's like, as a running coach, it's like, you know, like the thing that's going to move it, like 
there should be speed work in there. It needs to be this whole thing. But really, we need to zoom out and look at what the person actually needs. It is just time. It's just time on their, like, in their aerobic system. Um, and I think that's how a lot of running coaches do operate. It's like, if you run, like, to get faster at running, you need to run, which is true to a certain extent, right? Like, to, to be specific, like you do need to run. But, like, there's other ways to build yourself up to that point. Like, the whole way that you kind of broke it down that way is is perfect. And do you think it's, like... I hope that running coaches, like specific running coaches, will also come kind of come around to this. Do you think we're just in a unique position as OCR athletes yep. to 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 see this, or do you think it's going to multi-sport triathlon? They get it. I think I think we need what we're talking about is compart like compartmentalizing this, right? Because you have two facets to performance in endurance sports, and really you have your metabolic and systemic demands, which is like your ability of like your to absorb and utilize oxygen. And then you have your like skill work, which would be the efficiency of movement, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't take nearly as much skill work or efficiency of movement to get your body prepared to perform efficiently in whatever modality you're choosing, whether it's running or biking or swimming or any of that. So really have your metabolic and systemic demands, which is let's get oxygen to our bodies and working muscles and also be it. And then the other side is biomechanical efficiency and ability to handle impact because that's what's gonna kill a runner if you're just a biker, just a swimmer, mm -hmm. your ability to eccentrically load, right? So all it really takes, it takes so much less um, like, like biomechanical efficiency and skill work than people think. 90% of what really matters is systemic and metabolic. And that's just like training your heart and your lungs and your body and blood flow and capillary beds to do what they need to do. And it doesn't matter how you do that, whether it's on the rower or the assault bike or in the swimming pool, and then all you need to do is be efficient enough to go out and perform at an effective rate so you're not like flailing all over the place and not utilizing your now metabolic skill set well enough. So like I would argue that the perfectly placed two run workouts a week and everything else is just cross training if done right and you can still run efficiently, like you could really be extreme with this. I had had a lot of weeks of two days of running, haven't I, Bracken? Uh, two days a week running the week before my 50K. I only ran twice. For example, okay. So like, I think there's a lot to that is all I'm saying is like, you just compartmentalize it. There's two sides of this and the metabolic and systemic sides, like 80% of it. And then the rest is just like, if you can get out and make sure your body moves efficiently, you're good. You're right. You're right. And what people miss on that whole message is that if you're not a seven day a week runner, you have to be a seven day a week somethinger. Like if you, if you're going to, I'm a three day a week runner, that's great. But now you just became a, a three day a week cyclist as well. And, and when you, when you write a program for someone who said, I can only handle three days of running per week, I want to lift the others and they get the program. They're like, well, there's just a lot of cycling or a lot of hiking, or there's a lot of rowing. I don't want to be a rower. Like, no, this is, this is the job to get you the job you want. Mm. Like if you want to be a five day a week runner, it comes through your three days a week plus two or three of something else. Like you're not becoming a biker, you're biking so that you can run more in the future. But you have to hit your volume one way or the other. You can't run three days a week and that's it. You guys are successful because you run two or three or four days a week, but you do other things on the other days that work on that systemic side. Skill work only works when paired with system like you're talking about. And if you only hit three quality days per week, eventually it erodes itself. And people, a lot of people don't want to hear that. Like I have to become a biker on my non-running days 
biking doesn't make you faster. And that's what the runners will say. You don't worry about biking, just run. Well, that's great. But if you can't run, you have to bike or you have to row or you have to ski or you have to assault bike. You have to do something aerobic so that you can replace that with a run rather than now you've just added a whole new component and impact and you're not used to the volume. It's that piece. It's just proven. That's just, yeah, like you need to have that that volume in there to, to make it really work. Um, one thing that I've liked to do with, uh, with like low end aerobic work is kind of have people move in in and out of things and have it kind of be like a really long type of Metcon. I think some CrossFitters kind of train that way would be like two minutes on the assault bike and then two minutes of box step overs and then two minutes on the row and just kind of moving in and out of things just so it's not so monostructural and then they can work on some skills in there as well. It makes them feel like they're getting stronger, but while they're working on their aerobic stuff. Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it. It doesn't just have to be one thing for a long time, like on the elliptical or something. I haven't talked about it. Well, I haven't talked about it, but you'll see on my Strava, my 70 minutes, it'll just show in, indoor bike. Every, nobody knows every five minutes I'm getting off and doing 15 pull-ups, 15 dips and 15 lunges per leg and getting back on. Nobody Secret sauce. That. Yeah. Nobody knows that, but that's what's happening. Well, you always say it. It's, it's about stroke volume, your heart rate, your heart, your body. And we, we said this in a different episode, but it doesn't have an assault bike threshold system and a rower threshold system and a running threshold system. It has your anaerobic threshold and however you hit it is how you hit it. And you can use all of it as soon as you have the skill to use it all in whatever modality you choose. Like cyclists aren't great runners at first. They're decent runners. But if they run long enough to match their skill to their engine, then they're great runners. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like you had to reprogram your lungs to work while your legs are hitting the ground rather than, no, it's, it's the same lungs. And sometimes we forget that our body really is as simple as that. We overcomplicate things a lot. I agree. And also when somebody is in, a, in an injury pattern, um, that's like, well, I can only run three days a week. So that's that's it. I run three days a week now and that's where I keep it. But um, you're leaving a lot on the table. You're leaving a lot isn't even the right word. You're leaving a ton on the table by just running three days a week and then not filling the gaps with systemic work. And I so- don't believe you can do periodized training on three days a week. I don't either. How can you? You can't base build on three days per week. You can't hit anaerobic work on three days per week and progress it because there's no base built. You can't sharpen on three days per week, but you can if you're biking seven hours per week. You know, suddenly now it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. But it's again, it's the piece that you don't want to hear is the piece that buoys your ability to be a three day a week runner. So one thing that I've had struggles with in in the past in terms of like writing programs for people and I've just kind of stopped doing this is like when people want to run but also do uh, uh, Barry's boot camp or also want to do like CrossFit style like there's like like I mentioned before there's ways to do CrossFit to to make it be your quality work um, and the rest needs to be the aerobic style but when it's people want to get faster and do group fitness or hit classes. I've never seen that work. I've never had it work. No, it has to be done easy. Has to be done easy. Yeah. Like if you stay below 80% effort, you can do hit classes all day long if you really want, but then they're going to cut into your, 
but yeah, it's it's really tough because most people want to be as successful as they can be while being happy and training in life. I know. But <laughs> you can't go hard at CrossFit three days a week and do all the other things you want to do. And that's what's like you can to be in the CrossFit class or to be at Orange Theory, it's like the the idea behind that is to just like to push each other and to get to a place where you might not be on your own. So like, if you want to train in that style, you can do it and just like have this be a moderate effort, have this be an easy effort, have this one be yeah. a hard effort. But like, if you're going to do the group based stuff, just like the design of that concept is not the same. So like for everybody else in that class, that is their big day. That is their big day. And every and day is a big day because it's not about performance. It's about that day. The day of is the performance for that. Like your splat score or your 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 whiteboard yeah. score. Your you know, we all score. hit this. All three of us run into the same thing. It's funny because I always think, oh, how can I? But we all have hit the same conversation with athletes. So let's go around and say what our answers are. Like, it, Rich, apparently you don't even program it anymore. For what? For... For people that say I have non-negotiable three CrossFit a week or I go to boot camp four days a week or whatever. Uh, yeah, I still do it. I still like if, if but I, the conversation, the expectations have to be laid out. It's like, okay, the work that we're doing outside of this is going to be just aerobic work and skill work. Like we'll work either because you're spending so much time in that uh, time domain of like 10 to 20 minutes that if we do 20 minutes of threshold work, we'll just keep using that as the example. Like it's just going to be redundant and you're not going to be able to recover from it. So everything outside of this is going to be really easy. Like biking is a really good one. So I'll do splits with bike and running or rowing and running and then skill work and like really fast sprints. So it needs to be on both ends so that the middle that they do in the, like the Metcon training serves its purpose for the fitness and the skill and the aerobic work is taken care of on the other side. So it's like, do your class. Like it just makes it super easy for me. I'll just like, do 60 minutes of something <laughs> it makes it you know what do you guys do well i mean ugh. it that's a tough one right it's a tough one because the, the biggest deal with people who like or they want to meet their spartan group you know once a week because it's social and they recenter i have a lot of those right now but then the problem is is then well they meet on mondays and i'm like well monday's a really bad day according to my schedule because i need you hitting something hard on tuesday or wednesday so all it is is it's just like it's you're not following polarized training and then you had showed up to your quality day dull and then you don't move the needle much because you're always, you know, at three quarters of your capability on quality days. So like for that, um, I just bump it back and cater to their schedule. Cause I understand the social component and the need to do that. So it's like, I have to get out of my own way in a sense and be like, fine, you can do your quality day on Thursday, even though I want it on Tuesday. And then mm -hmm. we'll do a long run Saturday and we'll make it work. If that's what you need to be happy, even though, I think being happy while you're training should come second to doing what's important to get the job done. But that's just me. Old school. <laughs> Old school. What about you, Bracken? Uh, I've tried so many styles. It really depends on what their goals are. If they want to be happy, then I just tell them, just choose one of three things. Either do all your CrossFit Orange Theory boot camp classes at 80% or less. Like keep it, make it like high-end aerobic work. And then we're going to train on top of that. Or do all of them all out. And like Rich said, we're doing nothing but aerobic long runs and some strides, mm -hmm. some skill work. Like that's your all your quality. And you're just going to hope it ties into your aerobic. Or I say choose one and you're going all in. And that's our OCR work for the week. 
Like you can go all out. That's your compromise running, but you get one all out and the other two have to be really easy. But either way, my ultimate goal, I'm trying to be like sneaky and I want to wean them off of it. I want to show them that you're still kind of showing up to your other things, slightly compromised always. You're never fully recovered and you're never fully trashed. You're just always not quite ready to do the important runs. And eventually, hopefully, they wean themselves off of it. But it's tough. It's really tough. And the hardest part for me of this is to really understand what their goals are. Because, I mean, you know, when athletes come to us, they want to get faster, right? They want to perform better. At least that's what we would think most people would want. But then their actions based around that, based on the class and things, it's like, okay, they might actually, their goals might actually be to be social. And it's yeah. like, and they might tell us one thing, but their actions are, are saying something different. So, and then it's just like, all right, <laughs> do the class. Like, And if you perform better while being social and having that as a real a uh, big component of your training and you go to a race and you perform better than if you were isolated and solo and unhappy, then like we're, we are doing our jobs because you are performing better. Um, so it's like reading between the lines of, because everyone comes, it's like, yeah, I want to be better. I want to be faster. But it's like, but yeah. how, how do you want to get there? And there's different, there's different ways for everybody. You find out that I personally think athletes get sorted into three motivations for signing up with you. They all say, I want to improve, or I had this experience and I really want to do this, but it's really, that's true. And they just want the great programming and great coaching. They just want to go all in, or they just want an accountability partner mm. or they want a magic wand. Mm -mm. That one doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the ones that fall off quickly. But if they just want an accountability partner, you can be flexible on your programming. Like, yeah, this might be 85% of a great training plan, but you're going to hundred percent enjoy it. And if you want a magic wand, like we're not going to make it long anyways. So I don't care. Like, yeah, I'll give you what you asked for because it's not going to work. But if you really want to be great, then those are the people that are generally willing to give up those those non-purposeful sessions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's tough working with the amateur crowd because they always have that mix. You have to have enjoyment in your life. Otherwise, you're passionless and purposefulless, purposeless but you also have to see improvement. Otherwise, why am I spending all this time doing it when I have a job and kids and whatever? And that's the thing on, on my end, at least as a coach, it's like my ego gets mixed into it. It's like, oh, they're not getting good results. It's like, well, they're not really doing the stuff that they need to do because that's not necessarily the end goal. So it's like, yeah. I just have to let them do their thing and be okay with them maybe not getting the best results possible. And Kirk, you know who the best example of someone successful on that style is? Who? who, who would we both know that did this and did Mike, well? Mike Ferguson, Mike Ferguson, but he's a guy who did basically no strength work and then went to boot camp. Right. And, <laughs> I remember going to boot camp. and if I told him go 60% effort at boot camp, he'd pick up tens and do 10 pound thrusters <laughs> and he would do box step ups with no weight or he'd do quarter squats instead of uh, ATGs. Like he followed it through and it was basically just time on feet active movement. He's the only person I've ever seen improve in a consistent manner while doing multiple boot camp style group classes per week. It was also the first time he was ever consistent with any sort of strength routine, I believe, in his entire life, which um, has to be part of the equation. And he was sleeping like 10 hours per night. <laughs> he was. And like, he was all in and he was disciplined. But I, I mean, everyone thinks that they're unique. But in 
10 years now of coaching OCR, I have one person I can name who is successful off going to boot camp or group classes. Only one. Despite my best efforts, it just doesn't work often. It really doesn't work very often. <laughs> now, if there's a if there's like a intro to strength class or something that doesn't involve high heart rate, metabolic, and plyometric work, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. You have a personal training session with a sports like personal trainer, and you're working on fundamentals. Different story. But all these, you know, you want people to leave sweating, exhausted, and like their heart rate got up into zone five, and they combine it all, and that's the typical boot camp, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about like a intro to strength class or something like that. That is very right. different. Right. And like, yeah, but that's a bad business model for, for, <laughs> right. group, for group fitness. Come in here and do three by <laughs> eight, <laughs> three sets of eight by bent row. Maybe and like, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. We have to hold them back in order to be successful in other endeavors. And they have to destroy them in order for people to feel like they got a good workout and it was worth paying them. Like both sides have their right motivation, but they, it's oil and water. It really is. And I've been in that space, right? Where it's like, yeah. I've, I've worked at these boutique type of high intensity fitness things. And like the way that it's programmed and put out there, they just don't make sense. They're not for, to make people get better. They're just to get people to feel like something is happening. You know, Hold and on. it's like, well, I mean, I teach those classes. I'll teach one when I leave here, but there's nothing wrong with that. If that's somebody who's like working on general fitness, it's their one of three workouts a week and they want to get a combined heart rate and strength base in. We're not like, I'm not bashing these. I don't think you guys are either. But when you're talking about specific goals, yeah. formulating into a periodized plan, it makes zero sense. If you're going to do it, you have to treat it like you are a power lifter where your running is simply a task and you add it in and you do it easy and you do it frequently and it's never super long and it's never fast. Like mm-hmm. your intensity is going elsewhere and you're just building the skill of running on feet, except you like you do, uh, Rich, you do a few uphill sprints or some fast strides. Just work the, like work the margins of it, work the yeah. very outer ends. Like Very. don't get blended up into that middle space. Cause it's just, it's too much. We our hardest being a multi-sport athlete, which is what I would consider us. We're in the realm of multi-sport. The hardest thing to do is, is get all your work in, in a week, but not get your heart rate up too many times in a week. There's only so many times you can go anaerobic before your system can't recover. And there's always one or two extra pieces you'd love to be hitting. What are, what are your signals, your, your personal signals that you know you're, you're on the edge? Are you dialed in to the point where you're like, I'm doing too much? And is it, oh, is it consistent or is there something there that like is unknown for you and just like something pulls you back? I just had this conversation with an athlete, actually. I feel like as long as – I feel there are three stages of it. The first stage is you look forward to your quality days and you hit your quality days. The second stage is you stop looking forward to quality days and long runs, but you still hit them. And then the third stage is you dread them and you're starting to miss them too. And that second stage is when deloads are necessary for me. And third stage is when I have to take like a week or two mini off season. So as long as I can hit my quality days, I can maintain that, but I've got to back off every couple of weeks. But as soon as you don't want to do it and you start missing, like, you've, you've overstepped. Interesting. So, so yours is more like a, a qualitative, uh, approach around the work itself. Yeah. My, my rule, I always tell people I have two rules of thumb. The first is you can add in as much as you want of anything you want, 
But the second is until you can no longer hit your quality days. Hmm. When you arrive to your quality session and you know you're not ready for it, it means you stepped one notch too far on the, I can add in other things. So yeah, my rule is based around quality days. I don't think it's the only way to do it, but it's my personal, like the way my mind works. It's simple for me. Kirk, you got, you got. I agree with that hundred percent. I think that's, uh, hmm. yeah, very much so. It all, it always revolves around the quality days. That's it. And your, your emotional and physical attachment to them. That's what it comes down to. You if, know, you're not if you're not ready for them, then whether it means by dread or physically just tired, then obviously your equation's wrong. Dominic Toretto said he lives his life a quarter mile at a time. I live my life a quality workout at a time. That's it. <laughs> I always look forward to working out. I've never had this. I've never been like, I don't want to do this. That's not in my like. You've never dreaded uh, interval session when you're trying to hit big volume and you're trashed. Maybe in college, like I, when I wasn't performing well and I just like, it was like a lot of emotional stress going on that I really dreaded working out. But since then, I love it. I'm in like the signals I need to pay attention to are like, like, well, pain, pain is a big one for me. Like, where is this? Like, like sudden emergence of pain. And I also, my sleep gets real bad and like, I get like headaches in the middle of the night. And that's where I kind of know it's like, something needs to either be taken off my plate physically or like an emotional stress thing. Like those are my signals where I, I really need to like dial back in. But for me, like working out, I'm doing it. It's happening. So like, That's I don't, interesting. yeah, I don't necessarily have that. Like rarely anyway. And if I, and if I do, I've been in it, I've been like down so much that I'm like, it, I've dug myself such a big hole that I can't even realize that I'm in it. You know, what about I, missing workouts, like not hitting your paces, not hitting your, when you're when you're doing hundred mile weeks and you might have done it for too long, you're still hitting your your quality sessions and you're nailing what you needed to nail. Crush workouts. <laughs> but like, I yeah, can't like, even I can't even wrap my mind around that. I don't think I, I I can remember one bad workout I've had in like I don't know since like eight ten years, and it was like it was like <laughs> and it was like eight. I'm the king of bad workouts. Historically, all I can do is race. I can't hit workouts to save my life. But maybe that's another signal for me. Maybe I race poorly, right? Like that's another thing that like, where is the signal? Like what is wrong? It's never for me because I don't have that. I don't have that like dread or I don't, I I hit my workouts. I'm always, and I just, I just do them. So yeah. That's it, a fun way to live. Yeah. But <laughs> until like, yeah, until like I'm physically, until I'm a zombie and like, like I'm, my, my mood is out of whack. My sleep right, is You shitty. talked about that. But even when you're, when even you're a zombie and you're not sleeping well and you're waking up with headaches in the middle of the night, that quality day on Tuesday still pops and you hit your pace. Crushed. Always. <laughs> so you need, you need a partner. You need a third party to tell you when the signs are popping. Like, Hey, you've been crabby like three days in a row. Uh, um, you got to take a deload a week. Yeah. I think it's more just like creating awareness, creating space for myself to, to like be aware doing journaling practices or like doing sleep tracking, sleep tracking. I actually had to stop doing cause that was causing stress in my life. I was like, I need my sleep to be good. It's like, Oh my God, it said it was no good. Now I'm tired. Um, but yeah, no, I most really cared about sleep and I knew I was dependent upon it. And then I had our first, we had our first child and I thought I, I can't even look at the clock anymore because mm -hmm. <laughs> there's nothing but bad news. Right. Yeah. Like it, and, and it, it changes. 
it carries into the day. Like it, it carries over for me. It did anyway. Like I would have a bad day if my metrics were wrong. But you see that with athletes, the ones who obsess over it can only pop a workout after a good night and they, they can't have a good race if they had a bad night's sleep. And the ones who are like, eh, screw it, whatever, they can race or off anything. And that's where these, the, the metrics of, of things and just like this tracking of, of everything, when things are just not that accurate, like the sleep trackers are, they're, they're not accurate. They're just not there yet. Like it's something and it's great to create awareness around it, but they're just not that good. And so to be dependent off of something else, like your training should be, you know, like written in a way that you do feel good, right? Like that should be taken care of just by like program design. So if to have like this thing that like doesn't have any bearing on how you actually feel, tell you that you feel bad, it's just like a, a weird slippery slope. I feel like I'm out. I'm out on the, on whoop straps or rings, all of it. I'm out on recovery metrics. Yeah. Mm, They're not mm-hmm. right yet. Right. I, I and I believe sleep trackers are relatively accurate, I don't think but so. I don't believe that my Garmin telling me how much time I need to recover knows a single thing about me. There's this arrogance that these companies have that, that they know what's happening to us as athletes. And then being able to tell us like your data and your systems are not right yet. They're not good. Like that you don't know. I was involved with a fitness company that had someone at the helm who truly believed that technology could tell everything and that you could predict everything based off that. And whenever we got to the point where they were ready to launch a product in their mind, and I said, no, 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 this isn't ready. Like it can do one of the things, but then we're drawing correlations that are incorrect. The answer was always, this is what you do in the tech world. You get out the MVP product. Mm-hmm. Minimum, vi- minimum viable product, right? Yeah. And I always thought at the beginning when they used that term, I thought that's great. Yeah. Let's put out an MVP. <laughs> Most of, like, let's, let's, let's knock this out of the park. Like, no, no, no. Minimum viable product. Like if it works at all, customers expect bugs. We'll update it with patches. And then the next version will be even better. And this is what tech companies do. They put in phones used to be terrible like this, right? Like half the functions wouldn't work. And then they do an over the air update. And then a lot of them would be fixed. And now they've done it for so many decades. The phones work out of the box. But we're at the point in fitness trackers where phones were at a decade or two ago, where they're throwing stuff at you and making grand claims, knowing damn well that it cannot do what it claims consistently, but we will get you in the ecosystem and we'll fix it as we go. And it was one of my biggest turnoffs that I've ever had in business, realizing everyone has gotten together and accepted this idea of MVP, which is lying to people. You make the claim about what it's going to do at its best version, and then you put out its worst version and then we're going to work up to the best and it drove me absolutely nuts this is the way that the entire tech world operates yeah like the the zuckerberg thing is what like act fast and break things or or something like that and that's why that we're having this issue with things getting hacked like the gas pipes get like that's the same we're there's buggy stuff everywhere and that's it even in the ocr and running world there's just and it's one thing when you're an early adopter who acknowledges I'm an early adopter and I'm going to go through the hiccups of this tech. It's mm-hmm. another thing when the tech is directed at the health and wellness of the population at large of the country or the world. Like early adopters know this new tablet's going to be buggy. 
some mom or dad who buys their stuff at Target or Best Buy. And the guy said, oh yeah, yeah, this company, this company says this is going to be a game changer for you. And it, you just you work out when it tells you to, and you rest when it tells you to. They don't have the awareness that an early adopter has. And now it messes with people's lives. Mm-hmm. This yeah. has turned into a rant and I didn't even know it was coming. I'm happy. I'm MVP. Happy yeah. And they chose the most misleading acronym <laughs> you could ever choose. That's like if you t- called it, this is going to be our GOAT project product, but GOAT stands for it barely functions and we'll fix it later. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to solve for a while. Yeah. You can't do that to people. No. Yeah. No, I'm, I like the metrics in general just needs to be completely just put into its own box and just like these exist. It might get better right now. It's not. And the cell phone analogy is great, right? Like the cell phones back then we'd laugh at now. Like they're they've come a long way, but that's kind of where GPS watches are and these fitness trackers. They're like the like the phones with snake on them, the Nokia's, right? That's what these watches are right now. We're gonna look back in ten years, ten twenty years, and be like, that was so terrible. But- All you have to do is look at your GPS map of running around a track. Exactly, and that tells you everything you need to know about your fitness metrics. If it can't figure out an oval, how is it going to truly tell you heart rate variability? <laughs> right. You know, like, is it really going to identify exactly what, if you're at 92% recovery, if it tells me that a 400 meter lap is sometimes 390 and sometimes 412? If that's the range on a known distance, what's the range on an unknown entity like a heart? My brain's going to explode talking about people screwing up miles on a track. So where, where else? Oh, we, what else we got? We got other stuff. <laughs> the Coros 2 watch. Have you seen that one? The Elliot Kipchoge that claims to be able to be like 100% or 99.9% accurate on track. It's designed to hit GPS on tracks. That's like a selling point that they make, right? It's like, wow, great. <laughs> we do what everyone <laughs> says they should be able to do, but yeah. we actually can. <laughs> I haven't tested it, but it's exciting. I think the best technology on on watches, it, the the... the closest it pings is once a second and if you're running fast enough and you got enough curves around the track that's not going to cut it right so there i mean you have to enable that setting mm-hmm. so that it, it's considered like high accuracy is smart mode second. smart mode is pre-programmed in all of our watches and that pings like once every eight seconds well what happens if you go around a corner uh, when you turn on on a street it just cuts the tangent when it pings. So you lose all that distance. It's kind of frustrating. And then and then Strava and Garmin tell us how, what our, what's happening with our fitness based off of that data. It's like, always unproductive. Cool. Yeah. Don't even get me started on great, great adjusted pacing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, so I don't know where we want to go with this, but I got like four minutes. Four and minutes. I, and we haven't even gotten into the nutrition stuff that I know yeah. Bracken wanted to talk about. And all I that because we're we're rolling on about two hours here, but my window's closing, gentlemen. So I don't know how we want to handle this. What's your window, Rich? Uh, I have um, something at uh, four forty-five, so I got like forty minutes, thirty, forty minutes. Kirk, why don't you wrap up and we'll do the gelati thing? I want to talk to him for like ten minutes after you're gone. Yeah, he thinks you're real sexy, Rich, and he wants to uh, emulate your physique. So nice. I think he has some. I think he has some questions about those pe- pecs you're sporting. I'm gonna come out with a, a six pack ab program and sell it on Instagram. <laughs> day forty six pack. Day one go. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'll just step out and I'll let this thing roll, and then it rec- it stops on its own, I believe. So.
You'll be set missed. A sleep, set a sleep timer for like 25 minutes. I'm going to mute my mic and I'm going to face you towards the wall. Enjoy that view, suckers. We should see, we should mark this point and see how many p- listeners drop off once Kirk is gone. <laughs> Every female listener. <laughs> <laughs> I've added about the least amount of all three of us to this episode. So I think they're all staying. <laughs> you did, you did great. You did great. Well, Kirk. thank you. I was looking for your affirmation. So thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, enjoy talking about man boobs and nice uh, nice abs, guys. All right. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> and we've now entered the 5 o'clock time slot, and we're going to slow it down. <laughs> we, we didn't get to nutrition, and I do want to finish with that, Rich, because people responded well to yours. They... <laughs> Kirk's moving his laptop. Great execution. This is flawless execution. (laughs) We have bedrooms at the end of this hallway, and so we can't we can't see them changing before their their jobs and their workouts. I I, I appreciate it. Unfortunately for us, but people respond to it. They liked your episode. We got big numbers on it, and then I had personal curiosity myself. So I don't know if you heard our last episode. I did. I just assume that you listen first. You're the first listener. You and my mom battle for the first. Right. Um, but I talked about, I had two take, my two biggest takeaways that I wrote down were r- compromise, run like Dave and look like Rich. Mm-hmm. And what blew my mind is when you, one, you didn't tell me excuses beforehand. Afterwards, we talked and you're like, I just ran out of fitness. I'm like, well, you're super fit. <laughs> and you're like, no, I haven't. I haven't done a single quality run. I've just been doing easy runs and skill work. All my stuff has been on cross training. And, and it blew my mind for two reasons. Uh, not blew my mind, but it, it struck me for two reasons. The first is that we, I even get caught up and the rest of the world does is you look at someone and you judge their fitness off their appearance. Mm-hmm. And I got to get away from that because I looked at you and I thought, this is as fit as a man can possibly be. When in reality, you were coming in thinking my running's as low as it's been in a long time. So like, one, visual does not equal fitness. But the second is that you ran into some injury hardship. I did, Kirk did. I came out the other side 11 or 12 pounds heavier. You came out the other side looking like you were ready for a fitness competition, like to be stand up on stage and be judged in your little bikini. Board, board shorts if, you're not, if you don't want to do legs. Yeah, but and I honestly I don't know what your legs are like. You run in slightly longer shorts. I did for that event. I guess we could go splits later. Anyway, but my my point is that I represent the vast majority of people, which is we get hurt, we don't prioritize our cross training the way we should, and we come out worse for the wear physically on the other side. And then we're trying to play catch up and we're reintroducing impact, but now we have extra poundage on top of our impact, and it it kind of sets the stage for reoccurring injuries and you're just not happy with how you look and vanity is a huge thing. Uh, whereas you came out the other side looking like you hadn't stepped away at all. And I'm curious from a nutrition standpoint, we heard about how you worked your butt off during that, which that takes care of half the battle. But from a nutrition standpoint, what is your protocol for injury? So it doesn't necessarily change no matter what's happening in my world because it's still a matter of output versus input. And like there is going to be a specific amount of nutrition needs based off of the work that you're doing, right? So just being able to adjust how much you're taking in, it shouldn't necessarily change anything, right? Like like those physique competitors, they're they're not burning nearly as much as an endurance athlete, 
right? Like our nutritional needs are going to be higher than theirs because uh, of how much we do burn. So they're able to sculpt their body at lower caloric um, numbers. But they just know how much output they're putting in there. And if they want to adjust it and burn more fat or, or, or get a little mm-hmm. bit leaner, they'll do more low and aerobic work to burn a little bit more and just put themselves in a bigger deficit, right? Yeah, I grasped that. But you said that you don't worry about fitness trackers. So how are you correlating your hours of training when you're doing an instrument you're not as familiar with as you are running and, and you're not doing the volume you want? How, how are you staying on top of what your ratio is? I see. So knowing how knowing where it is, like how much I, how much my output is versus my input? Yeah, because I would consider myself an intuitive eater. Mm-hmm. The downside of that is I'm intuitively correct about the modalities I know. But when I switch to more lifting and more biking or more hiking, I don't feel the same and I eat how I normally feel. But then if I'm like really, like I lifted hard, my body wants a little more and, and there's not a correlation that I that I have history with. So that's what I wanted to ask you is like, what does happen that, that leads to the potential weight gain? Is it just the, the, the volume and the work comes down and the eating habits stay the same? That's one part. The other is that my volume dropped and my available time to find food rose. Like there's, there's also the option that when I'm working out, I'm not in need of food because I'm working out. And if there are four more hours each week where I'm not working out, I'm spending that time working or with kids and I'm moving around. I'm like, yeah, I'll grab a bite to eat here or there because I'm moving, not realizing I'd usually be running during this time. So you're filling the space. I'm filling the space and I'm also eating to my levels of uh, satiety. That's not the word. I think so. Satiety, satiation. Satiation, satiety. I'm eating until I'm sated, but my volume's changed, but my stomach knows a different level of sated rather than it knows what it currently should be sated at. And those are, I I look at those as two different things, right? Like the physical feeling of being full in terms Mm -hmm. of like the volume of food that you put in your stomach is different than actually being hungry. And like, no, and so that's how like you could eat most of your calories in fats, right? You could eat most of them peanut butters and oils and you will be, you should be satiated from a caloric standpoint from that, but the volume that you're it's going to take up so much less. So you might not feel it in terms of like the habit of the actual eating that you're, that you're putting in place. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one thing when volume gets low is finding is figuring out where, where those th- two things separate, like what is hunger and what is the habit of like feeling full. And if you need that part is like filling in with high volume foods that are low on the caloric consequence, right? Like upping the raw veggies, upping any of the type of veggies really is a really good place to kind of put that in. Cause I'm a high volume eater. Um, and you, would you say that's similar to yourself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So being able to fill that space with high volume foods that are, are lower in, on the caloric space is, is really big for me. Um, and then really listening to those signals of that space of time that would be filled with running and having it not be that way. And like thinking about why you're eating and what it's trying to accomplish is, is hard because it ends up being a little bit more mindless. And that's where like the mindless into like the mindful and intuitive eating kind of thing comes in. So for me, structure is important and having times where I'm eating and times where I'm not eating. 
right? Like, and, and, and sticking to that schedule is something that is really, uh, in my personal practice, very dialed in and like, and knowing what is actual hunger versus like the habit of like, I like that. And, and I, I feel like I've been perpetually injured for the last three years, but mm -hmm. prior to that, I wasn't. And so I'm still learning how to be injured, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, which sounds funny. But as I age and I injure, I learn different lessons each time. And this recent one was, this was the first time I really put on extra weight in my life. And so it was weird. I didn't realize that I was lacking structure, that I needed structure until suddenly I noticed a physical change. It, it never even crossed my mind because I never had to deal with that before. My metabolism never dropped with my other injuries. I think mm -hmm. now it's just 34 at this point. It's old enough that those start to change. And I've been injured long enough that things have started to have been down low enough that finally that change kind of took hold in terms of metabolism dropping and things like that. But I didn't even realize you enter injury with a eating structure because never crossed my mind before. And this is kind of what, what people talk about nutrition periodization. Mm -hmm. To me, that's all that could be every day. And like periodization kind of sounds like it's this seasonal thing. But to me, it's daily, like the intake changes day to day based off of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like today, I had a, a huge workout, I'm going to hammer food, but not to the point where it's like gratuitous, like where it's over the top. And to mm -hmm. the point of how much work I did today, I'm probably going to have to work to meet those needs. It's not going to be something that I'm just going to be able to do. And that's the other side of it, right? It's like making sure that for me to be able to build muscle or to stay lean or, or whatever, it's like the amount of work I'm doing, I'm going to have to actually put in work to eat that much food. And endurance athletes often come up short on that end. And again, that's kind of in the practice of tracking everything and making sure yeah. that we're, we're taking in the, the needs. And that's where those, those physical signals come in again. And a lot of times, like we talked about before, when my, uh, when I'm feeling like I'm at like teetering at that level of going overboard with training, it's usually a, a, a nutrition thing for me. And hmm. if it's nutrition or sleep, and if those headaches come in and then I'm like able to, to catch up nutritionally, it usually kind of goes away. And I think that's also why I, I do well at doing workouts. I'm able to get myself to that point and know where I'm under it because I'm feeling myself appropriately. Um, so what, and what was it like when, um, you saw that scale? Like, did you see the scale? Was it several weeks of, and like, what was that like? Well, it was interesting because like, this has been a, a slight decline. I feel like it took me three years to get to the point where the average person is because I had trained at any, I wouldn't say a world-class level, but a national level in terms of volume and intensity for probably 15 years. And I built up such like a volume of, of work and health and routine that it took me three years for it to fully fade. But so coming off of the second, going into the first surgery, I intentionally bulked up for high rocks. I always sat between 167 and 171 pounds, always. And so for the first time in my life, I intentionally put on weight and it wasn't super easy, but I got up to 181 pounds. So I went into surgery at 181 and then like through inactivity of the first surgery, got back down to like 175, 174, started training again and went back to lifting and got back up to probably 178. Then to have my second uh -huh. surgery. And this time I didn't really go back down. And then going into Jacksonville, I started to get more and more fit and I was back down to like 174. But this time it took 
nine weeks of intensity and I got back down to higher than I ever was a baseline before. And then after Jacksonville, I couldn't run for five weeks and I was right back up to that 181 again, but without trying to this time, like now my body started to, that became more of my process rather than it was hard to keep, to keep it on. It became, it wanted to go back to that. So it, it took that three-year process to, and I feel like the every man out there, the every woman, that is the process where you have to work to stay at what you want rather than work to get up to what you want. There's a natural settling point that your body's going to sit into mm-hmm. with a fat loss phase or a muscle building phase. And it sounds like because you had such a habit of volume for so long that your settling point was lower. Um, so you would always kind of find yourself there. And this is what kind of happens. Usually it's the opposite, right? Usually it's people want to lose weight. They diet for 12 weeks, lose 10 to 15 pounds. And then coming out of it, their maintenance phase isn't on point. They just kind of go back to the old habits and their settling point hasn't settled at their new weight. And their body wants it to be back to where it was. You yo-yo a bit. But each time the yo-yo comes down lower and up not quite as high until you get your new one. If you nail your maintenance phase, right? If you're if you're if you then eat enough food to to satiate yourself and to give yourself enough uh, caloric volume to let your metabolism know that like you're fed and you can maintain and like you should maintain this body weight here and everything is fine, then things kind of settle. It's like okay, then we don't need to move it in any direction. Um, so on your end, it sounds like yeah, things have kind of bumped up and your new settling points a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. So what are you thinking about dieting down? No, I'm I'm at a place where I know as my volume rises, it's just going to take care of itself. But it gave me for the first, because I started to a Jacksonville and immediately seven pounds came off. Like I know that's still there and I still wasn't hitting volume there because I couldn't handle it. So I'm maybe naive, but I'm pretty confident that it's just consistency with me. But it gave me for the first time in my life, the realization is like, this is what all the other people go through. The people that didn't spend 15 years training at a really high level, like this is the daily struggle. And it put into perspective that now that I have that perspective, I should talk about it a little bit more because if I'm feeling it now and like, oh, Bracken felt it for one month and now he wants to talk about it. Like how many people have felt it for their 15 years? It's hard. It's really hard. And it's hard from a performance standpoint, right? Because then you are asking yourself those questions, right? It's like, well, if I just weighed this much less or this much more, like where could my performance be? So um, for me, it's just been a long process of that, of like making sure that I'm doing everything I can in order to make sure that I feel as confident as possible that I will perform on, on race day. And nutrition is just part of that, part of that puzzle, right? It's like the training is fine. It's going to be good. And the nutrition is correlated to the to the training because that that helps the recovery. It helps my feeling. It helps my sleep. It helps everything for me. Um, but it's just taking years and years and years to like figure out like where that line is and like the body composition stuff. That's not anything that's been necessarily uh, a part of the training. It's just kind of a byproduct of it, right? Um, and then being in the gym a lot is like in, has helped that quite a bit as well. You know. Um, so in the gym, then how do you know your correlation between the work you're putting in prior to injury and what you're doing during injury so that you're making your appropriate adjustments with your okay. food? Yeah. So a lot of that, like, so from an intuitive standpoint, it, it does come down to those, to knowing those indicators, right? Like knowing where, where hunger is. And I check the scale, you know, I collect data. 
like, mm-hmm. and that, and that won't lie. You know, I get on the scale every day, um, just to see where things are going in either direction and just taking it from the, the food that I ate the day before in years past, I've been very meticulous about, uh, like measuring everything, logging everything. And I'm not as much now because I have a general feel for what is full and what is, um, overly full. Like I kind of know what that feels like to be satiated at, at, at that point. I still kind of have an idea of where I need to be. There's definitely formulas that we can, that I use. I have like a, that, this whole nutrition calculator that I use. It seems to be pretty accurate. It gives a good sense of how much work I'm doing. Um, it's pretty accurate whether you're it's based off heart rate and duration. It's not even heart rate. It's just how much, how much you weigh and the work that you're doing duration. Okay. So it's like broken out by like running, strength training and biking. And then rowing, rowing is kind of closer to running and swimming. I don't really do. So I don't necessarily account for it. <laughs> so it might not work for like a triathlete. Um, but that calculator gives me a good sense and it doesn't necessarily need to be exact unless you are just starting this journey and you want to get exact results. It's like, okay, I want to lose 10 pounds in 15, 12 weeks. Like then it's important to be exact so you can see what's happening at a certain amount of food because the the calculator itself or the, any of these calculators going back to like the metrics thing they're not accurate they're not they're not based off of the person like if you if i if you or i ate 3000 calories a day and we're sustained at that like if we ate if then the next 12 weeks we ate 3300 calories we probably put on muscle somehow right because that's where our settling point is and that's where our metabolism is so it's about playing with those numbers and it's like, okay, if I ate this much and nothing happened on the scale, what happens if I eat a little bit more? It's like, okay, nothing happened on the scale. Again, this still must be closer to maintenance. It's like, let's eat a little bit more, which is just more fuel, right? It's better. It's going to be better for the recovery. It's gonna be better for the sleep. And, and just like, so I kind of take it from the approach is eating as much as I can without it really like having a negative impact on the scale or on like a a run or something like that. That makes sense. I would say I'm at the point where I don't believe I'm overeating too often. I'm under training. And I know that that's the same thing, but it's a different perspective. Whereas food's not a crutch. It's just a routine. Mm-hmm. And my right. the complementary workout routine wasn't meeting the needs. But I know that the opposite is true for a lot of people as well. The opposite is definitely true. And then that's – so let me ask you, do you have any emotional – connection with food is there any type of use that food uh like provides for you outside of fueling the only emotional attachment i have to any sort of food is what i have right before i work out like the pre-workout style like i i feel more able to handle a workout if i have my routine but that's it like i don't and i think that's i would consider that feeling no i've I'm a pleasure eater, I would say, but I have no attachment to it. Right. Like it doesn't I switched make- last week from chicken and rice to chicken and salad to try to hit that volume, but lack of debt. And my mood didn't change whatsoever. I got hungrier earlier, but like, I, I don't have an emotional tie to it, which, which I believe is lucky for me. It's an inactivity, not a compulsion. It feels. Yeah. It's not, it's not making you less sad. No, you know, it's not, it's, it's not-, not providing you something other than fuel. Which is uh, funny because I'm I'm at a stage in life where I'm as happy as I can remember being. It just also is paired with the fact that I've been working out less and spending more time with family. You know, 
Yeah. And, and so in that case, yes, you are lucky. And I think with people and athletes like you, there are people who are like that, who are able to like, okay, eat this much and you're going to get this result and it's no problem. And they're just like, got it. And then there's no other work that needs to be done. But a lot of times it's like, well, I have this feeling of uh, like doubt or shame that comes from my childhood. And like mm, when yeah. that, when that pops up and that's when it's sticky, you know, that's when it gets a little bit muddier, but like for the athlete who is going to be very metrics based, it's like, all right, yeah, it's switching from rice to salad. That's yeah. the move. And I don't want to downplay that other side. It's just I had this whole moment where I came off injury and I know what my stomach looks like and Rich came off injury and he doesn't look like he came off injury. I thought I, I, there has to be something in my approach that's fundamentally wrong. It's It sounds like a volume thing. Like my volume didn't go down. You know, and yeah. like the ru running isn't going to provide a, a, a better body composition, right? That's true. Like it's not going to build muscle in my midsection or my back, right? It's going to be, it will, it's not going to do anything for your body composition besides make you leaner, you know? How often are you hungry? Um, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you eat then or do you let it slide? Depends. Um, historically, I eat the moment I'm hungry, regardless of frequency. Which is like, does that set me up for fail for uh, for struggle as I become an aging athlete, or not an athlete anymore? Um, maybe. I mean, is that a feeling a lot of people just live with, or is that when they're hungry? Yeah. Um, I think that like figuring out what the signals are. Like, cause hunger isn't necessarily, isn't always like, again, same thing. It's like, are you thirsty? <laughs> are you sad? <laughs> like what, like, or are you needing fuel? Like that, that, that dull nine stomach hunger. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily get that, that I get it, but I will, I'll know based off what training I'm doing. So I'll okay. be able to kind of a, a, like account for that. It's like, Oh, I'm hungry, but I should be hungry. So either next meal, which will be, which I can fit in now, or the next one, I'm just gonna have to add a little bit more stuff. Okay. Um, and that's been the confusing part for me because I'm, I feel like I should know the difference between I want food and I need food, but that, that dull ache that I've always associated with, I need food after a workout, I'm getting around the same time of day, even when I don't work out. Hmm. And so that's been the confusing part. Like, man, is this just what people have gone through? All the athletes that I've worked with who have had weight goals, they've described similar things. And I've always assumed I just know myself better. But part of me is what finding out maybe I don't know myself as well as I thought I did. I was just working out so much that it covered up any weaknesses I had. And volume will do that. Like when you're doing that much volume how you done for 15 years like it will cover cover things up like that's how like yeah like even if you go out and go crazy one night or whatever like it's not gonna matter but for some people it does but the the one thing when we were on the nutrition episode we were talking about some of the fad stuff and like how mm -hmm. like most of it is not useful for the athlete but one thing that i do find kind of helpful is like the idea of fasting for this purpose is to be able to separate uh hunger from like wanting to eat right? learned so, hunger yeah hunger and learned hunger so have you ever done a fat like fasting i did i used to do eating windows okay and i would just you know 
10 a.m. to 7 p.m. or whatever it was at the time. But then I've done one intentional 24-hour fast. I did that last summer nice. just to how, feel what it was like. How was it? Uh, it wasn't terrible, but it almost never left my mind, mm-hmm. which is weird. Uh, and then by the time it was ready to like, – I spent the last – three of the last four hours like – Let's just, let's just finish this off. Let's do this because my brain didn't necessarily want to. And then by the last hour, suddenly I realized, I, I wonder if I could go another day. It's a, the thing, it's a weird day, right? It's a day without eating. And like that takes up time. So all of a sudden you have this time on your and hands. And I still ran. Yeah. How'd that go? I, I went easy and light. I was, yeah. I was ready to eat right after. And it made that afternoon difficult. But then again, by the end, suddenly I felt like, okay, I'm in control again. I got this. Maybe a day. Should I go two days? I thought, no, nah, I'm going to eat. But that, it was the middle part was the hardest. Mm-hmm. Where where you would spend time eating. Like you're like, what am I doing? And with I, was, my time I felt now? legitimately hungry. Mm. Hmm. And that, but that's what I like about the, because like you, you ran, you kept going, you didn't have to eat. Like you were going to make it, you know, and you could have gone another day. You probably could have gone two more days. Right. Um, and there's like available nutrients, there's available fat stores like on your body that for kind of that purpose. And that's what we talked about the, the ketogenic thing too. That's what the ketones are. It's like, it's kind of your last ditch fuel source to get your um, fuel to your brain because fat won't do that. Like carbohydrates and ketones do that. So that's like why you kind of feel that focus when ketones are in your body. Um, but that is a, a good way to learn it. Like when, when you start doing like intermittent fasting every day, it's not intermittent every more anymore. You're just right fasting all the time. So it can be one or the other. And it's a good, I like it as a good tool. Um, okay. So for someone like me out there, how often would you do a 24 hour to get a, a sense of what's hunger, what's not hunger? Or would you just kick off a block of injury like that? Maybe I like that idea. Cause it does give kind of a reset and it's a little bit of a mental reset as well. It's like a shift from the way you were thinking and the way you were doing things like things are going to change because you're not going to be able to work out the way that you may have. So like, you're going to be dealing with some sort of internal struggle from that perspective. So that's not a bad idea to like kick that off. It's like, okay, let me just fast this and see, and have something else to focus on. I don't know. Once a month, I think is, I think is appropriate. Like there's no reason to not like, I think it's 25 hours. preferred on a rest day. Um, I would prefer the next day to be a rest day. Like what Hmm. you did would be like, if you did a fast on Monday, run on Monday, but on Tuesday, that might not go great. Interesting. Yeah. That's kind of how I would put that. So you don't, do you have restrictions on your fasted days? Um, Workout wise? Is it just within reason or do you, do you say, do what you got to do. And then the next day you recover and eat. Yeah. I mean, it's probably low end work, low end aerobic work. I don't necessarily restrict it, but it wouldn't be wise. I don't think to do something hard. Do you lift on fasting? I have that doesn't necessarily go as well. Um, but I have. Are you compromising your your ability to take benefit from a lifting workout if you're not feeling afterwards? I'm not exactly sure what the science t- says on like a single bout. Um, I'd imagine like you would you would not be able to recover from the muscle damage as quickly. I mean, I'm sure you're not. Com- I, I don't think it would necessarily be beneficial. I think it would just be based on habit, make you feel good. Interesting. Like, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily like progress something, but go to the gym and just like move around. Yeah, I do that. Okay. I appreciate this. This is this is helpful. 
I mean, it's just something to figure out like what, like th those things. And like, once you get back in the habit of volume, eventually you're not going to be able to do uh, 15 hours a week of training in your life at some yeah. point, <laughs> you know, we're all getting older, right? So at some point, this is going to have to be learned for a lot of people, right? And like when, and I think about this a lot with the, the relationship we have with physical activity in general. It's like, yes, this does serve a purpose for, for the mental benefit and for the training benefit, but like they, they don't, they, it might not be super wise to have them so connected all the time yeah. because it's not going to be there always. And that's like the injured athlete or the aging athlete. Like yeah. it, you're going to have to wrestle with that at some point. Yeah. This injury for me was like what a lot of people experience going off to college or getting their first job or getting married or having their first kids where they're suddenly sedentary for seven, eight, nine, 13 weeks. And, and you come out the other side, your metabolism's different and your body's different. And a lot of people don't always come back from it, but it's got me interested in this process for the first time because for the first time I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing to go through. It's, it's relatable, right? It's, I, I got, I went through this in college. Like I gained a bunch of weight in college and had to work myself through it. And like we talked about it on the first episode, just like, I didn't have any resources there. I had to figure it out on my own and it sucked, <laughs> sucked really bad. And it sucks a lot. And everybody kind of goes through their own thing. Every like, it's not a unique experience to have issues with nutrition. Every, yeah. I, I feel like everybody kind of has them. It's a, it's a strange occurrence to feel it the first time. I'm fortunate. I made it 34 years before I felt it, but at the same time, you arrive to the age 34 and you don't have any skills for dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Right. So what are you going to do? Uh, my, my plan is to treat it like I would treat a, a client, which is put in four to six weeks of good, consistent volume and weigh yourself throughout and, and take a look at yourself. And, and if nothing's changed throughout that, then, then maybe there's a more of a you issue in terms of food than you thought there was. But if it throughout those four to six weeks, it's already starting to feel a little more normal and you see the number going down a little bit, then you know you're on the right path and then doubles get added. And at that point, a couple of days a week to me, and then that always historically brings me to racing weight. And so follow the path I know with incremental steps and keep on top of my eating when I need it and just make sure you're, you're not taking the extra that you don't need. But I'm, I don't plan on doing anything, uh, more intense unless I go for six, eight weeks and I'm not seeing any sort of change that I expect to see. So like collecting data first, going back to the routines that I had mm -hmm. prior. And if the same routines and the same mindset aren't yielding change, then, then I assume at that point I am making an issue. Like I'm, I'm nutritionally, I'm messing up. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause if it's not something that needs to be anything bigger than it is. You should yeah. find that out first. Because personally, I, I, I'm, I'm being honest. I truly don't feel like I have any sort of emotional attachment to any of this, which is great. Like, yeah, I want to look great and I want to run great, but I'm not sad with myself and I don't eat emotionally. It's so I, I truly believe that in my personal situation, just getting back to my routine susses out whether this is real or not. Yeah, but at good. the same time, I know there's a ton of people going through the same thing and their motivations might be different than mine. So I can send you that calculator. It's easy to share. If you just want to look at it just to see like where you're at and like, I mean, might as well. 
Yeah. If, if, even if I end up not needing it, I'm sure that a couple people I work with will. Totally. Yeah. Share it with them. It's it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Again, it's not like the magic bullet. It's not going to be completely accurate, but it's going to give a good sense. And then just like a little awareness around what what's coming in and what's going out is is, is can go a long way. That makes sense. Thanks, Hyrox. Hyrox did it. Um, cool, man. Well, I think I've exhausted my time here. Um, Me too. So this was super fun. I agree. Thanks for coming on again. And it was great seeing you in Orlando. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you.